That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog, because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Oh, we'll get to Jody Allen on today's show. We'll talk some college football on today's show. We'll talk Oregon's baseball coach. He is on his way back from winning the regional. The Ducks likely to host in the Super Regional. Should be out any time with the schedule. But we have a lot to talk about. But I want to start on that front, that baseball front. We get knocked. And we, by we, I don't mean you and I. I mean the entire Pacific Northwest. We get hammered on the weather front. People just tell us, oh, the weather's so bad. I can remember growing up in California, even though I was born in the state of Oregon, growing up in California and thinking about baseball in the Pacific North. How do they ever play there? It rains so much. Now, maybe we can thank the inventors of field turf for helping the Pacific Northwest, or maybe there's just something going on where our baseball teams, college teams in particular, and a lot of the high school teams just just play through it. Maybe we're less distracted. I don't know. But Oregon has advanced out of the regional. Oregon State did not get out of the regional round. Got knocked out by LSU just a few minutes ago. Uh, I think they just ran out of pitching. But I think Mitch Canham and Oregon State, you know, let's just talk for a second uh, first about Oregon State. We can get to Oregon. And I also want to talk about the University of Portland, which is playing some good baseball as well. And uh, the Hillsboro Hops building uh, a stadium, a new stadium out in Hillsboro. Uh, K.L. Wambacher is going to come on the show to talk about the thing. Apparently it's going to be like a 6,000-seat stadium, state-of-the-art. It's going to feel like a Major League Baseball ballpark. What are they after out there in Hillsboro? It's fantastic to just think about it, and we'll get a visit from K.L. later this hour, first about Oregon State. There are going to be a lot of disappointed Beaver fans who are going to be upset that Oregon State did not get out of the regional, the Baton Rouge Regional. And LSU was tough. No team in the country spent more time ranked number one in the baseball rankings than LSU did this season. I think it was a big order. It was a tough draw for Oregon State. Oregon had to go beat Vanderbilt. And Vanderbilt's got a lot of history, of course, in college baseball and good, great program. But LSU's playing at a different level. And at different points this year, people have picked LSU to win it all. So I think it was a tough task to ask Oregon State to go on the road and play in that tournament, and I think they just simply ran out of pitching. And it was evident today as they gave up 13 runs that they were eliminated by LSU. I like some of what we see, though, from Oregon State and Mitch Canna moving forward. And I just have to say, for people who are upset, and a lot of Beaver fans are upset, like immediately people are like, we suck, Uh, Beaver fans uh, saying that on social media. What's wrong with the program on social media? A lot of frustration there. Um, I think it's really interesting to think about and frame the expectations to the point where a team can finish second in the Pac-12 conference and 
have a decent postseason, go to Baton Rouge, end up playing a game on Monday of a regional round, and uh, leave after scoring seven runs in that game and have people go, oh, it was a, it was a lousy year, we stink. I think it's really interesting to see the expectations at Oregon State and what has happened there. And you know what? I kind of like it. And if I'm Mitch Canham, I would like that as well. We had a long conversation with Canham on this show about two weeks ago. About the Canham era, Oregon State did not dogpile after winning uh, Pac-12 games or Pac-12 championship. It did not dogpile after winning a regional or even a super regional. Oregon State had the one dogpile rule, and they got an opportunity in this recent era to do it three times in Omaha. Pat Casey gets a ton of the credit for that. His staff, Pat Bailey and others, deserve some credit for that. Players like Mitch Canham and a lot of the assistant coaches like Darwin Barney on the current team deserve credit for that, that they are shying away from expectations. I love some of their young players. Gavin Turley, kid, high school kid from Arizona, he's a freshman. In the regional, he was 8 for 16 with four home runs and drove in 12. Um, really good regionally. Had a home run and an inside-the-ballpark home run today in the loss to LSU. Gavin Turley, uh, quite a player. Bright future, great swing. Um, just, I, I think if you are a, if you are a uh, college baseball fan, you're thinking about Oregon State's future, and you're going, okay, they have it there. I just think they ran out of pitching, and I just think it's a testament to what AC has built and, frankly, a testament to the entire Pacific Northwest. If you really think about it, I think Oregon State was the catalyst not just for itself, but I don't think Oregon brings back baseball if Pat Casey doesn't win back-to-back national championships. We all know what happened. The faction at Oregon that was rubbernecking going, why are they having so much success at Oregon State in that sport? They're getting a lot of attention. Pat Kilkenny among them looked over and said, hey, we need to bring back baseball. And I don't think baseball comes back to Oregon if it's not for Pat Kilkenny, who was the booster-turned-athletic director. What a wild dynamic that created all those years ago. If you remember, Pat Kilkenny came in kind of in the wake of uh, Mike Bellotti stepping around and down as the athletic director and said, okay, I'll take the job. I'll take it for like a year. He spent, uh, I think, almost three years in that seat and ended up uh, helping engineer the return of baseball, elevated the softball program, and, uh, you know, frankly, boosted Dana Altman's program, hired Dana Altman. I mean, Pat Kilkenny did a whole bunch of nice things in a very short time at Oregon. But one of the best things that he did was he looked over at Oregon State and said, hey, they shouldn't be having all the fun, and decided that Oregon needed to get into the baseball business. Now, you see some of this back and forth between these two schools. They're rivals. It should be. You make each other better. I got that stuff all the time on this show, you know. Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, he needed Joe Frazier and Sonny Liston and George Foreman, Ken Norton. He needed those guys. Validate them. Make them better. Elevate them. You know, it's it, for the same reasons, uh, you know, Mike Tyson needed Evander Holyfield. You know, champions need champions. Usain Bolt needed Justin Gatlin and others to run against. Champions need champions. Tiger Woods, he needed Phil Mickelson, and he needed, you know, Rory McIlroy. And, and, you know, now we're watching golfers now validate each other on the tour. It's, to me, it's interesting to see the catalyst that Oregon State baseball has been in our region. Because I think, you know, we can talk all we want about, hey, the expectations are so high at Oregon State that getting to a regional and losing in Baton Rouge to LSU 
is a major disappointment for a program just because the stakes have been elevated to the point where Oregon State it just plays lights out and we expect them to get to Omaha. I think they will get back to Omaha under Mitch Canham. I don't think it'll take them long. And, you know, I think that they need, uh, you know, obviously they've got the hitting. I think they need more depth, more pitching, and I think they'll go get it. Meanwhile, you have to acknowledge what Mark Wazikowski's doing at Oregon. They are playing lights out. They knock out Vanderbilt in their regional, and the way that it sort of unfolded, it became evident, you know, mid-Saturday or Sunday, I started to get messages from my baseball friends going, I think if Oregon wins this regional, they're going to host, and they could host Oral Roberts because of the way this is breaking down. And I just think it's remarkable to see this happen. Here was the uh, double play that ended the game uh, over the weekend, gave the Ducks a come-from-behind win. And he comes with power. Ground ball to short. This could be it. Second for one in the relay to first a double play. And the Ducks have come from behind and won it by a final score of 5-4. to four. There it was. Uh, Ducks winning. I just think it's interesting to kind of watch what is unfolding in baseball and trace the origins. Yes, Oregon had baseball before this current era yes Oregon had uh you know brought baseball back but anybody who was here knows why they brought baseball back the Ducks brought baseball back because Oregon State was good so a catalyst I think it's part of why Oregon State right now we're watching Oregon State in track and field make a resurgence I think you have to look over at Oregon and you have to tip your cap to Oregon on that front going hey the Ducks are motivating Oregon State to be better in a sport that you know they were okay in I just think it's remarkable to see what's happening. And then in the backdrop, you've got the University of Portland, who is playing great baseball as well. It's going to be a lot of fun, I think, for baseball fans in in coming years. And I don't think that the perception from outsiders this this time is going to be that, oh, it rains so much in the Pacific Northwest, they don't play great baseball. I think uh, it's quite the opposite. I think anybody watching college baseball or even softball thinks, hey, there's great softball and great baseball being played in the Pac-12 Conference. And, oh, guess what? Washington in softball, Oregon and Oregon State in baseball, Oregon sometimes in softball. I think if they had kept uh, Mike White, their coach there, they still would have been a national championship contender. They didn't see the investment in it. But I think you have to acknowledge that, you know, the brand of baseball in the Pacific Northwest got a big-time boost over the weekend we got a great show for you today. We'll be visiting with K.L. Wambacher, the general manager of the Hillsborough Hops. He'll be coming along at 3.24 p.m. Wazikowski, the Oregon Ducks baseball coach, will be getting off a plane. He told me it'll be about 4.35 when he lands. And we're going to get him on maybe at about 4.36, 4.37, right in that range. So he'll be carrying his bags, getting off the plane. We're going to have him on the show. we got a great show ahead for you. Uh, I wrote about Jody Allen today. We'll get there. But I have to ask Stephen the question that I was asked in the gym today. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm just kind of humble bragging or dropping the fact that I was in the gym. But uh, I had a guy come up to me, fist bump me. He said, have you seen the workout video for Scoot Henderson? Scoot Henderson working out for the Blazers. Uh, here's what he had to say after the workout. You know, you always want a guy like me, you know, that, that dog mentality. Uh, just my personality, you know, culture I bring to the locker room. Um, you know, I'm a good, I'm a great leader. You know, I'll tell tell what's up. You know, um, 
and I can do everything on the floor. You know, I can do everything on the floor. I could, I'm gonna go out there and give my 110% every day. And that's the thing about me. I'm very consistent in, in effort. And uh, even if it's not there, you know, I just try to, even on the next game, you know, I try to get right to it. Give it 120 if I didn't give it 110 last game. Damian Lillard, uh, yeah, obviously on record saying he doesn't want another young guy. But, Stephen, let me ask you, is there any way the Blazers can afford not to draft Scoot Henderson if he's there and he's the obvious pick at three? If Scoot Henderson's there at three, I, I don't see how the Blazers can't draft him. Like, he he's that good of a prospect. You know, he looks he looks the part. He says the part. He just has the confidence. Um, you know, he's 19, 20 years old. Like he's already a true professional. He's been playing in the G league for a couple of years. Like this, that's the guy that you pick. And we've had numerous people talk about it, how you don't pass on the number three overall pick for a role player or your third best player on your team, just to be the six or seven seed. That's just not what you do. You, you draft this guy because he can be that big of a deal. Now, will he ever be Damian Lillard? Maybe, maybe not. But at this point, He's also 13, 14 years younger than Dame. You have him on a rookie contract. You have other young players to build around. If he's there at three, John, the Blazers have to draft him. I don't see how they cannot draft Scoot Henderson in that situation. And I keep having people ask me, do you think it works, Damian Lillard and Scoot Henderson side by side? And I, for me, I, it's not that, that's not the question. The question is, can you afford not to take him? Because I think you take him if he's the best player there at three. And if he's not, maybe you have a Brandon Miller question to answer for yourself. But I think you take him, and then you figure out what is the timeline. Does this work now? How do we make this work in the short term? Is uh, you know, is he part of our long-term plans? But I, I just don't think unless you get a game-changing offer for that pick, and I don't think that's going to happen at number three in this draft. I, I think you have to pick him. And and for people who say that the Blazers will not contend without Lillard and, you know, with Lillard, Lillard and Scoot Henderson in the lineup together, I would ask you this. When have they contended in the last decade? When have they really contended since the Clyde Drexler era, like in since maybe the 2000 Western Conference Finals? When have they contended in the last 20 years? It, it, you know, they even though they made the Western Conference Finals with C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard, they didn't really contend. They got swept in the Western Conference Finals. So all this talk about contending, you don't take steps – from the lottery to contending with one player. But, you know, I'll steal the line, the Latin verse that was on the wall in the uh, Ted Lasso finale. It was about small steps and how small steps get you places. Like, you have to put one foot in front of the other. You know, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Like, this isn't about adding the number three pick and immediately contending. That's not the question. The question is, does he make you better, and is he the right pick? Yeah, and my my thinking always goes back to this, John. As a Blazer fan, I want the Blazers to win a championship. I always say this. I want to take my kids to the parade. I think it would be so much fun just a memory with them. So when I'm thinking of the team, I'm always thinking, how is this going to help them improve to be a championship team? And you're right. The number three pick isn't going to help the team win a championship next year. It's not going to help in two years. But if you trade that pick for a veteran, for a star player to go along with Dame, you're still not close to a championship. So I think that drafting Scoot is the best chance over time to build them with some other young players and hope that other things hit to build it that way. I just don't think that the Blazers are that close right now with the roster that they have, with the coach that they have. And so I think right now the best option, if Scoot's there at three, you got to draft him. And right now, you know, there's still questions if he goes, Scoot goes number two to the Hornets. They obviously have LaMelo Ball, who's a really good point guard, but Scoot may be that good where the Hornets say, you know what, we want Scoot. And we're going to look to trade LaMelo Ball. Like, that's how good this guy is. In most drafts, he's the number one overall pick. So the Blazers, they're in a very interesting spot, interesting spot, especially if Scoot falls to three. 
I don't see how you can't not draft this guy. Like that's yeah, how I, good that's how good he is. And I think that's you have to ask yourself, how did you end up in this position where you know you've got a backcourt that would potentially again be undersized? And but you know, I I think about turning a negative into a positive when I think about that backcourt. Part of the problem with C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard in that backcourt was, you know, they were undersized, they were defensively, they were liability as a backcourt, and that may hold true for a Scoot Henderson, Damian Lillard backcourt, you know, if you try to play those guys together. But what I like about it, and this is where you turn a negative into a positive, is uh, I think, you know, we are all concerned about the age of Damian Lillard and the age of whoever they pick at three. Now, if these things have uh, a variance to them, I think it helps you because I think in this circumstance you can say, hey, look, we'll take Scoot Henderson and we'll live with the defensive liability for now. But if he turns out to be a great player, if he is the bridge to being the future Damian Lillard or something, uh, a reasonable facsimile of a star, then all of a sudden you go, okay, now uh, you know you can move Lillard at the, at the February deadline and you can try to get bigger and you can try to get better at that position or you can try to turn Lillard into your uh, complete future and line everybody up age-wise by drafting, you know, compiling draft picks. But I think what you can't do is you can't do the, you know, repeat the sins of Blazers past and say, hey, we don't need Sam Bowie. You know, we are, you know, we are, or we need Sam Bowie. We don't, we already have a two guard. We don't need to draft another two guard in Michael Jordan. We, you know, we'll go get, we'll take Sam Bowie. You know, you can't repeat that mistake. You have to pick the best player. You can't repeat the mistake of the Greg Oden, Kevin Durant uh, draft. You know, I didn't disagree with the Blazers picking Oden because they thought he was the guy that was going to deliver titles. But I think everybody knew that Kevin Durant was the better individual player. Everybody was saying he's going to be a 10-time All-Star. And I think you have to if you're Joe Cronin and you're the Blazers. And I don't even know how much of this pick is Cronin's. Let's be honest. Burt Cold, I was watching the Scoot Henderson video. Bert Cold, that guy, sitting uh, in a folding chair, acting like he knows basketball, watching the Blazers' uh, workouts. Like, it, he, he may be a big problem. Isn't that the, the scariest part about all of this? It's yes. like he's there, and you know, you know, just based off the history with Paul Allen, how involved he was with the draft, you know Bert Cold's going to be involved. And he's watching there, and he acts like he's a scout. What did the Blazers do with that pick? Yeah. You just hope that they make the right choice. And who knows? You know, I, I I will say this, John. You know, for how much we criticize the front office and the management, at least they're having these guys in. You know, they had a yeah. Thompson in earlier last week. Now they got Scoot in. They're at least doing their due diligence. Where before with Joe Cronin, they yeah, did you trust what they can see? No, I don't. But at yeah. least at least they're doing their due diligence <laughs> with Joe Cronin, the GM hire. They didn't even interview anyone else. They just gave I it know. to Cronin. So like at least with this, they're going through the options. They're going through the draft picks. And if it works out where they want to trade for you know another star player that's already out there, at least they scouted these guys. And they, you know I can at least live with that. I don't agree with it, but at least they're doing their due diligence. I got a quick story that I think Blazer fans will just uh, geek out over. Uh, I was talking to somebody who was in the draft room during the Bob Witsit era, and I was asking, I was specifically interested in Burt Cold because he's now kind of running the show, Paul Allen's former college roommate. He's the vice chair of the organization. And so I asked the person, I said, how involved was Burt with the scouting and with the decision-making? And here's how it was explained to me, that, you know, Paul arrives for the draft, but Burt arrived in the room about 10 minutes before Paul. This is during the Witsit era. Bert turns to Bob Witsit and Mark Warkentine and some of the other scouts who were working for the Blazers at the time and says, give me the quick rundown on who you like. Who do you like? 
and they very quickly start going through, well, we like this guy, we like this guy, we like this guy, he's a guard, we like this guy, he's a center. We like. So he gave them four or five players. Paul walks into the room ten minutes later, says, who do we like? Bert stands up and regurgitates everything that he just ripped off from the Blazers scouting staff and Bob Witsit as if it was his own opinion. He didn't know anything. And, you know, it scares me that he's in that room. And, you know, it's a bad combination of ignorance, ineptness, you know, and and uh, arrogance. You know, there are a lot of owners, there are a lot of people running teams who will come into the room and go, hey, I don't know better than you guys. And they step back. And I think that is what's happening with the Seahawks, in fact, with John Schneider and Pete Carroll and all that expertise and wisdom and age and experience in the room. I think this whole regime that is so heavy-handed with the Blazers very much steps back when it comes to the Seahawks and goes, hey, you guys know better than us. We're not experts in football. And, in fact, when the Seahawks made that first Super Bowl, New York Times did a Q&A with Paul Allen, and he said, I don't know football as well as I know basketball. That scared the heck out of me as somebody who covers the Blazers. K.L. Wambacher, president and general manager of the Hillsboro Hops. They're building an empire, a shrine to baseball in Hillsboro. We're going to talk about what it means. What are they trying to do out there? Leave it here. I really have enjoyed over the years going to Hillsboro Hops baseball games, and especially now that uh, they have been elevated in their classification in minor league baseball. K.L. Wambacher, he is the president of the Hillsboro Hops. He's the general manager of the Hillsboro Hops. He is there on game days, walking around. I think he's probably caught a thousand foul balls. I've never caught one, so he's, he is kind of greedy. He's joining us now, Kale Wambacher. How are you doing? I'm doing great, John. I, I just give the ball to a kid, though. <laughs> <laughs> am I going to look bad? That because I am going to get one out at your stadium, and there's going to be a bunch of kids around me, and I'm going to keep it for myself. Am I going to look bad in that scenario? Do I bring a spare ball and switch them, you know, out of my back pocket? What do I do? You might want to bring a spare, because if you don't, that's ending up on Twitter for sure, and you're going to get roasted. <laughs> the last time I was there, uh, we had a sitter, so we had to leave early. And Anna and I went out to the parking lot, and it was about the eighth inning of the game. We had to leave. And I hear the crack of the bat, and I look up, and I see a ball coming, Kale. It's coming into the parking lot. There's nobody else in the parking lot. The ball lands about 15 yards from me, takes a bounce over the uh, middle strip, the median with the bushes, and it, it bounces up against a Tesla, and I start to hustle over to pick it up. This is going to be my moment. And there's a guy in the Tesla, and he opens the door and reaches down and grabs the ball. And it was just like, nope, just a tease. Bad he moment. was probably just there to charge his car, too. Didn't even buy a ticket. I know. Uh, KL, let me ask you this. Uh, you guys are you're building an empire. You're building a, uh, you know, a cathedral to baseball in Hillsborough. We've all heard about it, but I want to hear about it from you. Give us an idea. The genesis of this, what brought this to fruition? Why why is this even a, a thing or a dream? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is when we committed to being part of Major League Baseball's new professional development league back in 2020, along with the other 119 teams that committed to this, we had to commit to the new facility standard um, at the time, we thought that we'd be able to renovate the existing stadium, and you know we, we don't have a visiting clubhouse, we don't have weight rooms, we don't have female uh, locker rooms, we don't have eating spaces for players. So it's it's a it's a pretty significant upgrade that we that we're required to do, probably in the neighborhood of 40,000 square feet of new space. Um, we did a feasibility study, and, we, and, I, and again, we thought we could renovate 
we hired a design build contractor. We got into design. We were at 10% design and it was, I mean, it was $160 million. And, you know, some people are like, well, not to just do the player development spaces. True. But for us to, to be able to pay for the player development spaces, we need new revenue sources. So it's, so it's kind of an all or nothing. And so we need, you know, new spaces that we can sell, new group spaces, some premium seats. We can generate the revenue to pay the debt on the player spaces. So um, because it was so complicated, we're attached to the football stadium. There's Century Boulevard that kind of landlocks us, and there's a huge water line running through the parking lot. We just took a step back, we zoomed out, and talked to the city and said, you know, what do you think about right across the parking lot? Um, there's, there's a couple of softball fields. We could relocate those softball fields. Softball fields are much less expensive to build than a, a major league quality stadium. Um, and if we build a new stadium, then Parks and Rec gets Ron Tonkin Field exclusive use. So it's a, it's a tremendous amount of use for the community for, for Ron Tonkin Field. And so we did a study on that, and it was actually between 30 and $40 million less to build new than it was to renovate because of less site constraints. So at that point, it was like, all right, that's a, this is a no-brainer. So we switched to the design team back in December and, and had them just working on what that would look like, had Mortensen do some cost estimating along the way to, to make sure we were on the right track. Um, and then we were finally able to get everything switched over and get approvals. Uh, I think it was in March, uh, right before we made the announcement. So um, we, were, we were pumped to renovate, but when we were able to switch it to a new build, I mean, it was a game changer because now we can orient it correctly to where we don't have the sun issue on the third base side. We can, we can really design it to be the best player development experience in baseball. We can design our food and beverage operation from the ground up so we can have a much, much better and cleaner food and beverage operation and, and everything else that we can do along the way. We're talking about 6,000 capacity, major league feel. Give me an idea, because when, when I hear that or when I say that out loud, I start to think, like, you know, is it possible Hillsborough could move up in classification with that kind of stadium? Is it possible one day you could uh, entertain an exhibition game for a major league team? Could the Mariners come down and play a game? Uh, you know, uh, some possibilities there. Could major league – Could you? Uh, does it have the ability to expand? Could you bring major league baseball to Hillsborough someday, 20 years from now or whenever? Uh, but – are those kinds of thoughts on your mind as you see this stadium and you talk through this project? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is, this is the one opportunity we have to really try to future proof the venue uh, to the best of our ability with the knowledge we have now. So we have had conversations with the Diamondbacks about doing a spring training game up here. They're very open to it. Um, it it's, it's been done before with, with major league teams coming to Portland um, natural fit with the Mariners as well regionally. Uh, the way the new player development system works with Major League Baseball, they determine what level you're at. So when they moved us to high A from short season A, we didn't really have a choice in the matter. They didn't, they didn't, you know, they didn't give us a multiple choice uh, question that we could answer. So um, th they do have the ability to reclassify things again and, you know, create a West Coast double A. I don't know if that'll happen, but it, it, it's now possible with the new system or, or move us to triple A or move us down to low A, which is probably not realistic, but um, definitely possible. So trying to feature-proof the venue as much as we can, but what, what's helpful is the new standards with Major League Baseball unifies everything. So it used to be you'd have different standards for triple A than single A. Now the facility standards are the same no matter what level you're playing at. And I think Major League Baseball did that 
So if they do need to move teams, classifications, the facilities will all line up. So as we're de developing all the player spaces, we want to have the best batting cages, the best weight room, the best clubhouses, the best umpire experience, and even building the umpire experience to where we could have four or six umpires in there rather than just the two that we have in our league. That way we can make a run for the Pac-12 postseason tournament um, and compete for that. We could bring spring training games up here. We could do you know, maybe international exhibition games with bringing a team from Mexico or Dominican Republic, uh, big time events like that, that we'll have the facility to, to do. Kale Wambacher with us, president and general manager of the Hillsborough Hops. Um, you guys are going to open your home season at Ron Tonkin Field tomorrow. Tickets are available at hillsboroughhops.com. I'll get to the baseball in a second, but uh, I want to ask about just the city of Hillsborough because I know that one of the frustrations with some cities, not going to name names, is that you know they have a hard time getting things done. It feels like in Hillsborough there is, uh, with the city council and the mayor and the citizens there, there is some initiative, uh, and and it's business friendly. I mean, you just see the growth that's happening out there. Yeah, I mean, just in the eleven years I've lived here now, it, it's amazing to watch the growth happen just right around us. I mean, Top Golf coming in, a lot of the new semiconductor expansions and new businesses coming to town. Brookwood used to be empty, and now it's full of these massive buildings that are employing tens of tens of hundred, or hundreds of people, thousands of people. So the the expansion in Hillsborough has been incredible to watch. I think I think the city has kind of come closer to the metro too. When we first moved here, people would be like, "Oh, it's way out in Hillsborough." We don't hear that "way out" term anymore. We just hear, "Oh, it's in Hillsborough." So I think I think hopefully we've been part of that of of bringing Hillsborough into the metro and making it feel closer. But um, working with the city is, is awesome. They, you know, we've talked to other cities over the years. I mean, we, we wanted to make sure that whatever investment we make now is a 30, 40, 50 year investment. So we wanna make sure that it's the right location in the right city with the right infrastructure. Um, I think the best thing Hillsborough does is they're good at looking at what they have now, but they're good at visioning what they want to be and look like in the future and and taking the steps and taking the risks now to set themselves up for 10, 20, 30 years down the line. And to me, that's really what, what separates them is they they have that they have that vision, but they're not afraid to take risks and 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 work with private business partners to make those investments now to realize the potential later. People are killing me because I said the season, the home season opens. I meant June. Uh, you have a homestand opening tomorrow against Spokane. you got a big homestand with six games in a row. Uh, I love seeing games at the stadium. Kids are running bases this weekend against Spokane. You're having some celebrations going on. But uh, give us an idea. What's going on at the ballpark? How full are you? What does the baseball look like to you? Uh, the season's been great so far. We're up, we're, we're up considerably in attendance from, from last year. It's only the second year we've ever played in April and May, so I, I think there still is a, a learning curve of, of us starting in April. Um, April was okay; it was pretty cold, so we had yeah. we didn't have some great crowds in April. But May is May was beautiful, so um, we had plenty of nights where where the place was full, especially on the weekends um, when kids are out of school. And then and now as we get into June, the crowds just get better and better. You know, the baseball has been great. It's it, it's been up and down as far as the record goes, but. It's a team they they fight every night. Uh, we've had we had some great comfort behind wins in Everett this last week. 
Uh, we have a kid at first base, Ivan Melendez, who was the second-round pick last year out of Texas, Golden Spikes winner. I mean, he's he can rake, he, and, and he's really started to hit the ball well. Um, we've had really good pitching. So it's it's been a fun team. Um, center fielder Patino, who's who's fast as heck. It, it's, it's really fun to watch him play in the outfield and, and, and run the base pass. So it's a fun team. It's a good brand of baseball. Ronnie Gajanic, our manager, has been doing a tremendous job along with the coaching staff. So um um the baseball the baseball hasn't let us down it's been fun kl the you know i was talking in the opening segment about just baseball in general in the pacific northwest i don't think there's anybody more qualified to really talk about it but i think oregon state's success they've raised the bar they've raised the expectations so when they go to a regional and they get eliminated even against lsu people are disappointed uh oregon getting out of the regional heck i don't think oregon brings back their program if oregon state wasn't so successful uh, in winning multiple national championships. University of Portland's playing great baseball. I know you hosted some of these games, but can you speak to just the health of the college baseball scene, the high school baseball scene in the region? Well, I think you're right, John. I think we have to give a ton of credit to Oregon State and, and the success they had in the 2000s, winning a couple of college road series, two or three college road series, whatever it was. We actually had some players that played for us in Yakima that were on those teams too. So we were we were somewhat familiar with the program, even, even when our team was in Washington. Um, I mean, they, they showed it can work. They showed that, you know, with, with the right facilities, the right recruiting, the right coaching, you can develop a winner in the Northwest. And, and, it, and it allowed Oregon to make investments in their program. And then you have more D1 programs um, that kind of push each other and push the su- success of each other. That's going to help your your other amateur programs, like your high school programs, and it, and it filters all the way down to the youth level. I mean, we see kids coming to our games wearing Beavers hats and Beavers T-shirts, you know. So they're while we don't have an MLB team here, you know, they're cheering for their college teams, which creates that inspiration to play baseball. So um, I think it all it all filters right back to the to the Beavers and the success they had in the two thousands. Is that something you want to do? Like you know, especially with an expanded uh, new stadium, uh, you know, do you become a place that would love to host University of Portland, Oregon, University of Portland, Oregon State, Oregon, Oregon State games? Uh, you know, how, how creative can you get with that new facility? Big time, big time. We, we want this to be the place for baseball. So, I mean, we're going to do, you know, we have a major concert promoter we're, we're working with that where we can do some real significant large-scale concerts. So that's a part of the business as well with the new ballpark. But um, a lot of it really does come down to baseball. So from the from the youth level up, we're programming our batting cages to where they have an outside entrance and we can open those up for youth to use in the offseason for free. Uh, being able to bring Little League opening days and hosting them at, our, at the ballpark, uh, doing games, tournaments, um, trying to work with as many high school programs as we can to play at least one game there a season. Um, and then with the college level, being able to expand what we've done already with UP, Oregon and Oregon State and maybe doing, you know, we, we've even had some brief conversations with Nike about almost like a PK-80 event with, with from a baseball perspective. Um, I mean, we've always said when we started this process, the best venues get the best events. And if we have the best baseball venue, one of the best baseball venues in the country, we're going to get the best baseball events coming coming here. And that's, that's really a driving force for us. It's really exciting. Uh, you know, I'm excited to see what it turns out to be. Um, you know, and obviously as uh, Hillsboro grows in footprint, I was just out there at Top Golf over the weekend, and I was looking around, going, "There is, there's still a lot of room for growth 
uh, and a lot of, uh, and I can just see the opportunity in Hillsboro. Okay, I'll thank you for coming on. For people who want to grab tickets, hillsboroughhops.com. I will see you at the ballpark, Kale. Yes, outstanding, John. I look forward to seeing you. Thanks so much for having me on. You bet. Kale Wambacher, there he is, president and general manager of the Hillsboro Hops. Their season uh, well underway, but they uh, have a homestand opening tomorrow. Uh, six games, all at home, no days off, um, good weather. Uh, this is the time to get out and see a ball game and catch a foul ball. I want you to leave it here. Our big splash is coming up. Mark Wasikowski, the Oregon baseball coach, just texted, texted me. He's on the ground early. They're on a layover in Denver. He's going to be joining the show in 15 minutes uh, to talk to us uh, as they are making the trip back. Heading back to Eugene, where they are presumed to be playing and hosting in a Super Regional this weekend. We'll let you know as soon as that is all out. Uh, That's not our big splash, because you already know about that. Our big splash, we bring it to you every day on the program in this segment. Here we go. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Well, the NFL is investigating an Indianapolis Colts player for possible violations of the league's gambling policy. The team acknowledged the inquiry today, saying in a statement, quote, we're aware of the NFL's investigation and they have no further comment at this time. The news came out after a report by a a wagering site called SportsHandle.com cited an investigation into a Colts player's pervasive betting including wagers placed on his own team. The player was not named in the report. Team officials did not reveal his identity. An NFL spokesperson was asked uh, for a comment and said nothing to add. The Indiana Gaming Commission has confirmed that they did receive information pertaining to the matter. They're not the lead agency. But remember, in April, the NFL suspended five players, including four from the Detroit Lions, for gambling policy violations. Um, uh, also, a Washington Commanders uh, defensive end, Shaka Tony, was suspended. Um, last year, Atlanta Falcons receiver Calvin Ridley got suspended for the entire 2022 season for betting on NFL games. He was then traded to Jacksonville at the trade deadline. He's been reinstated uh, this spring. The NFL is in an interesting position, isn't it? It has widely embraced sports wagering. Heck, the sports industry in general has embraced sports wagering the revenue streams that are coming from sports wagering are awfully interesting to major league baseball the nfl hell the pac-12 interested in sports data and how they could monetize their their data for uh, potential gambling entities now the nfl and others have widely embraced this stuff but simultaneously they have uh, said hey no, no, no. we're all about it but we can't have our players being all about it and i understand why Players are prohibited from placing bets while at NFL facilities, and they are explicitly prohibited from betting on NFL games. It's interesting that you can go into NFL facilities as a fan and see lots of signage and sponsorships, and you can hear players promoting FanDuel and DraftKings and fantasy sports leagues, and you can watch games and every other commercial, it seems, is about cryptocurrency or fantasy football. But don't you dare wager on a game. I got a problem if a player's wagering on a game they're involved in. I actually agree with the NFL that players should not be betting on NFL games if they're part of the NFL. But 
Is any of this surprising to anybody? Stephen, surprised at all that the NFL is having the same kinds of problems that regular folks have when it comes to gambling? Uh, not surprised. Not surprised. And I mean, before, you know, sports betting was really relevant and all these leagues, you know, started getting in business with them. It's not as if these guys weren't gambling before, whether they're playing cards in the locker room or they're, you know, shooting dice they're doing stuff in the locker room. They're making bets. They're competitive guys. Like, that's what they're going to do. Guys are going to compete. And I think this was happening before. But now it's so easy to access betting right on your phone. And everything is on your phone right now. We just don't think about it. And if you're a professional athlete, you're an NFL player, you just don't think about, like, you know what? If I sign up for this, they know exactly where I am. They got the geolocation on. They need to make sure I'm in the state that I'm at where I'm making these bets. So you know, you just don't think about it. And so it's not surprising to me uh, that it's happening. The surprising part to me, John, was the fact that the player hasn't been named yet. And that makes me think it might be a prominent player. And what the Colts do in that situation, I don't know what it is, who it would be. But if it's a really good player, I wonder what the Colts are going to do if they're going to release him, if they're going to suspend him. Because you look at the Lions situation, Jameson Williams is really the only player that you know had any name to him. He got suspended. They're not going to cut him. Everyone else basically can get rid of Calvin Ridley. They got rid of him right away. If it's a good player on the Colts, are they going to get rid of him or are they going to keep him? I find that very fascinating, and I can't wait to see what happens. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. I As I looked at ESPN.com, and tell me if you have this experience. The When you look at the ESPN homepage and you look at this story, just bring up the homepage, ESPN.com. I hate to give them the click, but let's give them the click. And when you look in that column and you see the headlines for today, tell me what you see as the top headlines. And then tell me, as you read the story, what you see. Because I believe that player is going to end up being Isaiah Rogers based on the headline that ESPN forgot to update on the main page, sort of the uh, the initial headline. Do you see what I see? I don't see what you're seeing. What, okay. What am I missing when you here? look at when I look at ESPN.com, oh, yeah, it does say Rogers. Rogers yeah. is in the headline that is on the front page, but it's not the actual headline of the piece. Yeah, and then you click, believe, you click on it, it says NFL investigating Colts player for possible betting. I believe that player is going to be Isaiah Rogers senior who is a defensive back four years into the league and uh you know i think that that is going to end up being the player and i think espn knows it and then backed off of it maybe even changed the headline before publishing but unfortunately sometimes that happens uh they did not change the headline on the main page so i think they gave away the identity of the player so um i don't know what to make of all of this other than we're in an era like I think kids who are growing up today, like my 20-year-old who's in college, knows everywhere she goes there are cameras. She knows how to handle herself on social media better than I think people that are my age or older. She just she just knows how to deal with the trolls. She knows how to, you know, you know, this is they've grown up in this stuff. And they've grown up being uh, you know, knowing that there are cameras everywhere they go. I think it's really interesting to watch sort of the I guess the normalization or the advances that have been made in sports wagering and watch some of the grown-ups struggle to understand that when you create account an account on a legal sports wagering site and you use your identity, your driver's license, your social security number to set up the account, I think you're foolish if you don't realize 
that the entities are sharing this information with the regulation uh, operations, like the state gambling entities, the uh, Gambling Commission in Nevada and Philadelphia and Oregon and other places, they're all sharing information with these third parties who are uh, essentially there to make sure there's no irregularities. And I think that we're watching some people get caught in that who are not thinking because I think some of this is new. It's new to me. I don't know if it's new to you, Stephen, because I think you were using other ways to place, you know, manners to place bets before. Allegedly. But allegedly but you're not you're not typical i think of like an nfl player who's in the league and suddenly has some money to play with yeah no not at all and you know i don't have the type of money they have and i don't have the clout that they do so um you know i'm not necessarily worried as much as they should be about it and i think that if the if this if these kind of things you know they keep happening and it keeps happening over and over if it doesn't become a wake-up call for these athletes i don't know what it is because if they're if you're being suspended you're losing money not only from losing bets, but now you're losing money for your job. I think that's got to change somehow. Yeah, I think we're going to watch professional athletes. This will obviously happen less and less frequently. But I think what we're having right now is a reckoning. Again, we had a minor, minor league baseball player who came on the show, placed college football wagers during the pandemic, and he was banned from baseball for wagering. And he didn't know. He said, I didn't know I couldn't wager. Well, you know now. And I think a generation of players that are coming along five to ten years from now we'll all have grown up in it and understand hey you know that's a no-no you can't do that but i do think you're seeing some guys who either didn't know or didn't think about it or didn't think they'd get caught obviously because it's just foolish what calvin ridley did is dumb what the detroit lions players did it's stupid it's foolish like you know they gave up far more than they could ever gain placing a wager mark wazikowski oregon baseball coach he's next well the ducks got it done mark wazikowski's team his program Remember, it wasn't that long ago, Oregon didn't even have baseball. Pat Kilkenny was the driving force, former athletic director, longtime booster at Oregon. Ducks win the Pac-12 Baseball Championship. They've now won a regional, heading to a super regional, likely hosting a super regional. Wazikowski's on the ground. They're on their way back uh, to Eugene. He's joining us now. Where are you right now? <laughs> Hey, John, we're just sitting here in the airport, just hanging out. Where You're in Denver? Yeah, we're in Denver. We just landed a little while ago. We came in here from Nashville. Love that. Uh, give us uh, give us an idea, man. I mean, you've last we talked to you, you're heading off to the Pac-12 tournament. You played great baseball there. Did you get a sense at that tournament that you guys were putting it together and could keep it going? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. We, we, we're... We started playing really good at Utah that final weekend of the year, and you know our backs were really against the wall. We were we were stuck. I mean, we we had to win some games or else we weren't going to get in, and we knew it. And I told the guys that I was probably the most honest that I'd been with them ever. Um, and there wasn't any sugarcoating anything. It was just real simple. Hey, we need to win or we're done. And uh, we had done some things I thought early in the year to position ourselves really well, but then we went through you know a, a heck of a rash of injuries where. You know, it, it kind of put us back a little bit. We needed to regroup and rebound, and, and the kids just embraced the, the role of, of kind of, <laughs> you know, the uh, back-against-the-wall mentality, and here we are. You get to the regional. You get in there against a program in Vanderbilt that has had tremendous success, um, and you walk away as, you know, the, the team that advances. I mean, what does that mean for your program to, to get that regional win and, and, and now potentially maybe host a super regional? 
well, to be able to go into Vanderbilt and do what we did was awesome. You know, Tim Corbin, their head coach, he's um, he's up there and considered, you know, clearly one of the, the best couple of head coaches in the country. And their program is up there as one of the best programs in the country, if not the best one out there. So, um, you know, for us to be able to go in there, I don't think any of the gurus picked us to go in there and win that thing. And, and our guys were able to pull it off. It's awesome for our program. You guys are, uh, you know, you've all season long hit home runs and you had plenty of offense, but I think we all know you need to pitch it to get, get through these uh, postseason uh, tournaments and, 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 and on back-to-back days and sometimes under less than ideal circumstances. Uh, how did you feel about the pitching performances you guys got? The pitching's been unbelievable. I mean, it was, it was lights out in the Pac-12 tournament. It was lights out down the stretch in the Utah series. And it's been with freshmen um, and, and basically new guys, with the exception of maybe Matt Dallas, who's been really the glue of that bullpen. Um, our bullpen's been incredible. They've pitched very, very well. They've pitched well this weekend. And, and like I said, in the Pac-12 tournament, they, they just threw the lights out of it. Yeah, and everybody talked about kind of the restructuring of that tournament, and I think we had that conversation before it that, you know, it just it seemed to be less taxing on the arms. Did you feel that, you know, even though you were playing late on that Saturday night, you got the extra day off on Sunday, found out where you were going on Monday. Did it feel like the pace of that tournament is much better than maybe it was a year ago? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I think you hit that one on the head. You know, we, the way we were seated and structured, I thought was ideal. You know, we played one, uh, we played the first day and obviously winning is important. And so we won, but we, we played one and then we had a day off. And then we were able to play three uh, in a row. So, or it just ended up being fantastic because you know you could you could pitch your bullpen, give them a day off uh, of rest, and then they were back. And usually bullpens can go two days in a row. If you start asking them to go three days in a row, that's when that's when it gets slippery, especially if pitch counts get over the 20 pitch uh, range each outing. That's when uh, by the third day they get really really tired. Mark Wazikowski, Oregon baseball coach with us, uh, super regional. Do you know, when we find out if you host, or do you have an inkling right now, or, or how do you approach that with your guys? Well, I think it's going to come out later or whatever that it's official that we're hosting. But, yeah, we're going to host. Um, it's going to be an awesome experience. Last time we hosted the super regional was at PK Park uh, in 2012, and I was an assistant coach, and they brought in temporary bleachers, and I think we had – over 7,000 people in the stands. The place went crazy. As you as you know, uh, Oregon's a sports, uh, you know, it's a sports state, and the University of Oregon is a huge, huge brand out there and the biggest in the country when it comes to the name brand. So the place will be rocking. It's going to be amazing. And, you know, obviously what's on the line is getting to Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, and I think, you know, your guys now – you know, I, don't, I, I know in baseball you don't talk about a no-hitter when a guy's got a no-hitter going. And, uh, but I think when things are going well and you're winning, it's a lot more fun, obviously. But give me an idea of kind of the messaging that, that you've been giving the guys between games and maybe even now as, you know, you head home from, from uh, winning a regional. Well, I mean, we – basically last night was uh you know it was a celebration because uh, you know we the game that we played last night was pretty well in hand for a good chunk of it we've got we got some clutch hits pretty early in that game for us to to put it away pretty early uh at least in the middle innings um the messaging's been real simple i mean um i don't know the way we went about this one is we just told them that it was a single elimination tournament even though it was double elimination we we didn't take that route you know we I don't think these guys that I coached this year, for whatever reason, 
have done a good job uh, when it comes to people telling them that they're doing good. Um, and they, I think it's, I don't know if it gets to their head or they get distracted or we just haven't done a good enough job with, uh, with them as coaches of buffering that news. But when they, it seems to me like whenever they start um, hearing stuff like that uh, during the course of the year, then what happened was is they started playing not good baseball. And so what we did is we just said, look, our backs are against the wall, which they were and they have been. And we just told them it's a single elimination tournament. Get your mind off of all the scenarios and the what ifs. You know, leave that for the media and the press and the fans. Let them have fun with that. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to take this thing like this is our last day of playing, and we need to win. And so um, don't have any other thing on your mind other than the fact that uh, get after it, take it to them. Uh, back against the wall mentality, that's kind of the messaging we've been going with. Let's go back to when, you know, you maybe you first arrive in Eugene or when you first take over as head coach. And, you know, Pat Kilkenny resurrected this program all those years ago. But – uh, how far away does that feel to you? Do you think about all the small steps that had to happen in between then and now? Well, yeah, and COVID was a big deal for us because we really needed to recruit. We needed to recruit. We needed to recruit uh, in a big way. We needed to get in the weight room. We needed to get stronger in a big way. And so the players we had on our roster, we needed to get them um, physical um, to where a guy like Tim Corbin this last weekend said, wow, these guys look like they're – as physical as any SEC team as we saw this year, and they look like they're at the top of the SEC with their talent and their ability and their physicality. And and that was the first thing that, that I talked with the group that, that I inherited when I first took over was, you know, we need to get in the weight room and we need to invest. And that was the biggest reason why I, well, I guess when I was interviewing and talking with Rob Mullins about the job, uh, and he asked me for my vision, and I told him, I said, look, I want to have our own strength coach that's strictly baseball who's working, and he understands baseball only. It's not some person who doesn't understand baseball, but somebody who gets it. Uh, I want Daryl Hunter as a strength coach if I get hired. That guy's amazing. And he went with it. So Daryl doesn't have any other sports. He travels with us. He's full-time. He, he rocks it. And these guys are hugely invested in the weight room, and I think that's a big reason why – uh, our guys are a lot more physical, and, and they can hang with, uh, especially late in the year when your bodies wear down. Um, they've, they've got the power in their bats, and their their bodies are built up to where they can endure a long season. Yeah, you met, that's a great point that I don't think a lot of people think about. I mean, they see like 88 home runs in the regular season, and they go, okay, they're hitting hitting the ball well, and they're hitting you know a lot of home runs, and this is not bunting and and this is not small ball uh, at Oregon, and but they forget about kind of the other benefit of weight training. You know, it, it's a lot of doubles and singles and and other things that happen it, during the course of a season. Do you find that with your pitching staff as well? Or, or are you getting guys that maybe are just in a little better shape, a little stronger, got their legs this time of year? Well, yeah, and I mean, it, it, what's what's really good about the system we have is is Coach Hunter can take those guys and it, it, he can get them in the weight room whenever he wants to get them in the weight room. Um, and it's not a deal where you know we got to see if the strength coach has got time between sports to come over and work with our guys or schedule it out differently. I mean, it literally is a catered program to every individual that we have in our program, and that's Daryl's job. So he doesn't work with anybody other than baseball. Those 40 baseball players on our roster are his – that's it. That's what he's got. And so he's with those guys 24-7, probably knows more about them and has greater relationships than anybody on our staff because he's with them so much. And, yeah, I do, John. I think that's a huge, huge thing about what we're doing uh, in terms of player development and being able to endure long seasons. 
Mark Wasikowski with us on a layover. He is uh, heading back to Eugene where the Ducks will host a Super Regional this weekend. Uh, Oral Roberts uh, as the uh, opponent. Uh, what do you know about Oral Roberts? Right now, I don't know a whole lot about their roster and about their, their players. You know, uh, Probably as soon as we get off the phone, I'll be diving into that pretty heavily. Um, you know, But I do know this much. I know that they're really, really good. I talked with the people that were in the regional already from this last weekend, and they said, these guys are the real deal. They've got arms, they've got bats, and they're just really, really good. So, you know, we'll dive into the details of it, and we'll get our guys prepared uh, in the next several days. But at this point in time, John, as you know, I mean, everybody yeah. that's left in the six, there's only 16 teams left. We're one of them, so the other 15 are really, really good, and we know that. Yeah, I think, you know, at this point, too, you talk about baseball. It's, you know, it's any given day. Uh, and, uh, you know, anybody can anybody can win this thing. I think that's the beauty of it and the magic of it as well. Can we talk about Pat Kilkenny for just a second? I saw him. He was on the field after the Pac-12 tournament. You know, you and him, he, he, he gave you a hug as you guys were picking up the trophies. You know, that guy, he brought baseball back to Oregon. Um, you know, what has his support meant to you guys over the years? Unbelievable. He flew out to Nashville, too. He was there. He was there the entire tournament. Um, he brought Joe Giansante out there with him and Coach Horton. They were all there. That was really special for us to have Coach Horton there. You know, I mean, for for the five years I was an assistant coach here, you know, Coach Horton was um, – he had this program where there were only two other schools in the whole country that had more wins in a five-year period than George had with the program that he uh, had at Oregon. And obviously he didn't uh, – the one thing he left on the table was a trip to Omaha, and that was a big deal, and, and that's something that I'm sure still sticks with him. Um, but just to have Coach uh, there and Pat there uh, and Joe there and Renee Baumgartner texting me left and right throughout the thing, and, and we did a, a special deal even in the right before the season started in January where we got Lynn Frommeyer, Frommeyer uh, was there in attendance with, you know, representing um, her late husband. And, I mean, just those people that started the program up, that's how special this thing was when we won the Pac-12 um, uh, conference title. And then – this one here uh, with the regional thing, this is awesome for these guys. And for us to get to Omaha is the next step. And uh, our guys understand that those details and, and Pat's support for us. We wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be anywhere without that guy. He's amazing. All right. You're going to get a great crowd. You said it's going to be rocking. Uh, on your way back, I got to know on a layover, is Mark Wazikowski a guy who gets to the gate and sits down? Do you like to stretch your legs and walk around? You're looking for a book, a magazine. What do you do at an airport? recruit recruiting calls uh the entire time so i mean it's it's recruiting calls 101 you know and and that's what we're doing is trying to trying to build this program and you know when you're it doesn't stop you know this job it doesn't it doesn't stop i mean we force ourselves to take about a week or so off in in december but other than that it's a 24 7 gig and it's seven days a week and and we love it and the people that that uh that are excelling i guess in this deal it's got to be that way because it's that competitive and so for us it's all about recruiting right now in the airport all right give me an idea too because you know you win a regional your brand is on television all weekend everybody knows you're going to the super regional uh you you have you know easier time getting your calls you know returned your texts returned like is that how much does that help you well time will tell on that um but i, I do know that the phone's loaded with a lot of a lot of people that, you know, have watched us now over the last two weeks and are really excited about what they're seeing on TV and the aggressive play that we get after it. And, 
and just the, uh, probably the most common thing that I hear from recruits out there is just, you know, coach, you know, it just looks like your guys are having so much fun playing. You know, what do you do? Like, what do you, what do you guys do to, to get your guys so excited to play? And, you know, and for us, it's just real simple. We let them play. We let them have fun. We want to have fun. We want to encourage that sort of environment. And we're not going to browbeat players. Uh, we are going to have a high standard and, and have our players determine exactly what that high standard looks like and the details of it. But, you know, it's just our job to play baseball, man. This isn't, you know, we're not doctors in a medical environment. I mean, this is something where we get to be outside. We're blessed. I mean, I'm an overpaid PE coach, and these guys are just awesome. We get to run around all day. It's, it's I love just, it. It's amazing we get to do this. I love it. All right, congrats, Coach. Keep it going. You caught lightning in a bottle. Keep doing it. And uh, I know a lot of people in the state of Oregon proud of you guys. Well, that's awesome. I hope they all come out and support us this coming weekend at PK Park. And, hey, John, bring Anna down. She'll be great luck, Pepperdine alum. You know, we there have that go. connection and all that. <laughs> bring it. Hey, come on down. Let's go. Let's get this place rocking for the state. I love it. And, uh, I love it. it. All right, Coach, good luck to you, and uh, we'll catch you down the road. We got With this karma going on, we've got to have you on next week as well. On it. Let's go, John. Thank you. All right. Go Ducks. There man. he is. Mark Wazikowski, Oregon Baseball. They are on a roll. They will be hosting a super regional, all but uh, all but announced at this point uh, against Oral Roberts this coming weekend. I believe it's going to probably be a Friday, uh, if that's the way it shakes down. As soon as we know, you will know. I'm keeping an eye out for that as well. Uh, for those out there that are looking and thinking about Oregon State, Oregon State was eliminated today against LSU in the Baton Rouge regional, and I think. Also, you know, if you are a if you are an Oregon State fan, I think Oregon State fans probably viewed it as a rebuilding year. Some people upset, going, "What's wrong? Why didn't we get to the super regional round? And why can't we get back to Omaha? You can't go to Omaha every year. You could try, but I think what you have to acknowledge is that an expectation has been set at Oregon State, and I think you have to acknowledge the role that Oregon State played in driving Oregon to be better." and investing in a program that Mark Wazikowski now has in the Super Regional. We've got some of the best college baseball in America being played right here in our state. So check it out this weekend, PK Park, as the Ducks will try to keep it going. Uh, love that interview with Wazikowski. He sounds, he sounded to me, Stephen, sounded to me like he, uh, you know, he was a little weary. Like, you know, I've talked to him quite a bit over the years, especially when they weren't having success. I've stayed in touch with him and talked to him. He's played in our BFT Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament multiple times. Um, you know, he, he mentioned Pepperdine. He went to Pepperdine as a player. Anna went to Pepperdine as a student. So they always have a lot to talk about, you know, when he comes out to the Celebrity Golf Tournament. But um, and I think for him now, he's, you know, he's, he's dealing with what, like, a lot of coaches have had success deal with. He's, you know, he's busy thinking about next season, two seasons from now, and recruiting while he's trying to make this season the best it can possibly be. Yeah, and I mean, knowing that you're going to go against a team like Oral Roberts, who is the four seed in the Stillwater yeah. Regional, like it puts a lot more pressure on you, right? Like it, it, it's not that it's going to be a guaranteed victory, but we've seen this all the time in college baseball, especially like these teams come out of nowhere, and it's going to be no gimme. But at the same time, you're not playing, you know, Oklahoma State. You're not playing an LSU. You're, you're playing a team in Oral Roberts. And if you win this series, you go to the College World Series for the first time since 1954. No pressure there, John. No pressure at all. I mean, I, I get it. Like, it's it's going to be nerve-wracking, but they have the right mindset. He talked about it, you know, one game at a time. It's not double elimination. It's single elimination. Yeah, that's the way you got to do it. 
And I think right now, you know, the way the Ducks are rolling, won the Pac-12 tournament, win this uh, regional, I think, uh, you know, I like their chances right now against Oral Roberts. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to talk about Jody Allen and the Blazers. She's got them in a stranglehold. Wall Street Journal piece over the weekend did a lot of legwork, but I advanced the ball a little bit today. If you read my piece at johnconzano.com, you know some of what I know. I'll tell you the full story coming up next. There's a fantastic uh, piece in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. Kind of outlined the saga of the Blazers. The uh, death of Paul Allen in 2018 has uh, caused a conundrum. Like, the basketball has moved on, but the franchise really hasn't. It's stuck. Uh, Wall Street Journal reporter Rachel Bachman, who I used to work with uh, at the Oregonian newspaper, uh, took a deep matter dive on the matter over the weekend. That The headline of the piece was the mystery of the NBA team that billions can't buy. It's a great headline. It sort of summarizes the fact that there's an NBA team, there's a potential ownership group in uh, Phil Knight and Dodgers co-owner Alan Smolinski who would love very much to uh, to buy the team. And unfortunately, uh, there is uh, there is a hiccup that they can't get a call back. Jody Allen, Burt Cold, uh, have not, I guess, returned calls, returned emails, returned written letters. Um, it's caused, I think, Phil Knight and Smolinski to go public with their offer. Because when you go to buy a team, and I was told this, by another NBA executive. You don't do it like this. You don't go publicly. And I think why we're hearing about it and why we know so much about it is because their offer has been rebuffed and they have been ignored by Jody Allen, the trustee of the Paul G. Allen estate, and Alan Smolinski, the uh, owner of the Dodgers, co-owner of the Dodgers, is part of this Phil Knight bid. Now, the Wall Street Journal piece outlined the $2 billion written offer that Knight and Smolinski made to buy the team last year. Jody Allen at the time was unwilling to have anything resembling a conversation about the sale of the team. In the Wall Street Journal piece, the reporter, Rachel Bachman, outlined the idea that Phil Knight and Alan Smolinski tried a second time, including earlier this year. They even made it clear to Jody that they still wanted to make a deal, and they realized the price had gone up, and they were willing to pay more than the initial offer. But Phil Knight's calls to Jody Allen were diverted to Burt Cold, who we talked about earlier this show. Nothing came of brief discussions, and even a few months ago, Smolinski sent a handwritten letter to Jody Allen trying to find some common ground, saying that he and Phil Knight would love to discuss the Blazers with her. In response, he got an email from somebody replying on Jody Allen's behalf saying Paul Allen's sports teams aren't on the market. I got news for whoever sent that email. Paul Allen is dead. He died in 2018 from cancer. He loved the Blazers. He also had a bunch of passion projects that he wanted to fund. And so this piece, I thought, did a lot of the important groundwork in framing the discussion. But I know a few other things that I want to talk about in this segment. Um, here's one. The NBA plays an important role in the future of the Trailblazers. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver is a really good commissioner by my view. You know, I think, you know, he you can you can nitpick him, but I think he's got a tough job, 
but I think he does a really nice job back-channeling and using a scalpel, not a sledgehammer, to get things done. He's very tactful. He's polished. He's obviously got a law degree. He worked behind David Stern for all those years as deputy commissioner. He saw Stern, who was a little more prone to use the sledgehammer. He watched him make some mistakes with it. Uh, Adam Silver is also close with Phil Knight. You need to know that. They are tight. They know each other well. They spent time together. They are, uh, they've got a direct uh, line to each other. I had one NBA source tell me that they believe Knight's public stance on wanting to buy the team came with the blessing of Adam Silver. Because I don't think, nor did the source think, that Adam Silver would have said, hey, go public with your offer if he thought for a second that Jody was going to be receptive to it. There's not a lot of upside for Phil Knight to go public with his wishes unless his decision to go public was designed to increase public pressure. And I think that's I think we've got a scalpel situation here. And I I feel like Adam Silver's fingerprints may be on the on the idea that Phil Knight went public. I don't think Phil went public with that offer without Adam Silver going that's not a bad way to do it. Or you should totally do this. Phil Knight is 85. He wants the Blazers. That is clear. That Can we put that to rest? Can we put the idea to rest that Phil Knight, some people said at the beginning, does he really want the Blazers? The fact that he continues to make overtures and try, you know, sends Alan Smolinski in thinking, well, maybe it's me. I'll send the Dodger guy in. Smolinski's 43. He's not 85. Different approach. And, and by the way, a really compelling figure in this whole thing. He made his fortune in college at USC. He was a student there. He looked around and he said, gosh, there's a, there's a shortage of student housing. Man, the rents are going out of control. And so what did he do? He bought up an apartment building. And then he started renting it out. He renovated it and rented it out. Then he bought another one. Then he bought another one. He very quickly became the biggest landlord in the region. He's in this Blazers thing for the same reason, guys. There's a development angle here. Paul Allen and his team for a long time sat on a bunch of real estate down in the Rose Quarter, all the surrounding real estate around Moda Center. Um, you know, they, they, owned a, they owned a motel or hotel that was across the street from the arena at one point. Uh, Alan Smolinski sees the upside. He's no dummy. There is massive upside if new owners can get control of the NBA franchise, get control of the arena, and turn the surrounding region into an entertainment district. Shopping, restaurants, housing, huge upgrades, place to be. You know, you've seen it done in a variety of other cities. And, you know, you think about the, the area around Staples Center in downtown L.A. and what a pit it was before the Staples Center got there. And then now you have, you know, a bunch of people going down there to have dinner, stay in hotels and see shows. And, you know, it's become something. There is massive upside, and Smolinski sees it. It's not just about an NBA team for him. He's 43. He's in this for the Hall. Now, I wrote months ago about Knight and Smolinski. They know each other because they live near each other in uh, Coachella Valley in a prestigious area called the Madison Club. It's uh, Palm Springs, but not really Palm Springs. Okay, It's the Palm Springs that... You and I can't get to, okay? So he's living out there in Madison Club, and for like, you know, $25 million, you can get a house there too. But Phil Knight and Spolinski, 
play on the same golf course, go to the same restaurants, they go to the same spa, they walk on the same hiking trails, they're both entrepreneurs who are self-made. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that they would know each other and that they would connect, and I think this would be a huge win for the Blazers organization and for fans if these two guys could get together on this deal. They are perfect. They're everything, like apologies, may he rest, may his soul rest in peace. They're everything that Paul Allen wasn't. They're very focused, they're driven, they're entrepreneurial, they see the opportunity. Knight has this hint of nostalgia in him. This would be a legacy play for him. Again, we're talking about the guy who sold sneakers out of the trunk of his car in college who built a sneaker empire into the greatest sports enterprise story that ever existed. Alongside... A guy who co-owns the Dodgers because he saw opportunity around USC. Now, the value of the franchise, the Blazers franchise, is in the middle of this. Knight and Smolinski offered $2 billion. It's probably worth $3 billion. So this thing has skyrocketed in value in the last two years. Burt Cold is holding the keys. The, vi- the Blazers vice chairman and that former roommate of Paul Allen, what a lucky guy. He is taking the lead on when the franchise does get sold. That's why it scares me when I watch him courtside at the Blazers draft workouts and he's yucking it up with Joe Cronin. I'm like, don't let Burt whisper in your ear and tell you who to pick. Burt doesn't know basketball. I don't even think Burt knows how to sell a team. I don't know how to sell a franchise. I'd be be all wrong for it, but I can tell you Burt Cold's wrong for it too. He will take the lead on the franchise being sold. I am told by multiple sources that he will receive a commission for brokering that sale. There's definitely some motivation. Blazers fans, pay attention. I wrote about this today. There's definitely some motivation for Burt Cold to get the best possible outcome and also to not wait 20 years to do it. Like, I think at some point, Burt's going to want to sell because he's going to want his commission. And that point may be littered with clutter, And, you know, I was told very early on by an NBA executive who knows the Blazers organization well that the holistic approach for the Blazers sale would be to sell to Phil Knight, take a little less money, make sure that the team ended up in good hands. It would be the right thing to do, the holistic thing to do. The problem is Burt Cold is not a holistic cat. He is going to want every single dollar he can get, the best possible outcome, and I, I venture to say he may be waiting for the league's new TV deal to get negotiated. But I think at some point he's going to want to sell this team and maybe find himself at the mercy of the trustee, Jody Allen. She's not in a hurry. Those two could end up at odds. Stay tuned for that match. But we keep hearing it could be 10 to 20 years to sell the team. And I thought the Wall Street Journal piece did a great job of laying out how ridiculous that is. They had an estate attorney say you'd have to really drag things out to get to 20, 10 to 20 years. Like, you'd have to intentionally drag it out. Why doesn't Jody want to move faster? Think about that. It's an important question. Why wouldn't Jody want to move faster? Is she stubborn? Is she aloof? Is she power hungry? Does she want to be viewed as the queen bee as she buzzes around the uh, empire that her brother built? Pick your theory. I, you know, none of those things are wrong. None of them. I, I've heard people who I trust and know go, she's stubborn, she's power hungry, she likes to be the queen bee. You know, uh, had one 
former Blazers executives tell me they you know, were talking about the apartment that's at the top of Moda Center. When you're at a game, if you haven't noticed it already, look up into the rafters and you'll see a smallish, looks smallish, but it's not really if you're inside of it, apartment that was placed up in the rafters at one end of the building. Paul Allen's apartment. And I don't think he spent a night in there, but his mother, Faye, did. Would spend the night and sometimes get to stay there. And I uh, recount a conversation I had with a Blazers team president who was talking about that building and mistakenly in front of Jody called it Paul's apartment. And Jody cut him off and said, that's my apartment. Like, really? Jody Allen, that's your apartment? Queen B. It may just be that she's stubborn and power hungry and she likes to, you know, I'm in charge of this. She's the queen. But that said, I had an interesting conversation a couple weeks ago with a source at Vulcan who gave me another apparent reason for Jody to slow play the liquidation of, of all of the assets. Apparently, Jody is collecting a management fee to be the trustee. Now, I hadn't thought of that before. And unlike Bert, she won't make a dime when the NBA team is sold. She doesn't get paid. But in the state of Washington, trustees are allowed to take a reasonable annual distribution. The figures vary. I've heard 2%, 3%, 5%. I checked with the state attorneys. I heard from more today who said, hey, for a billion, couple billion, 10, 20, 30 billion dollar estate, she might only be getting 2%. Uh, you know, she has a fiduciary responsibility, but in the state of Washington, there is not a set figure. There is not a cap on that figure. So Jody Allen could reasonably be collecting 100 to $150 million per year on the Blazers' value alone as the manager of this state. They're worth $3 billion. Keep that in mind. You know, 2%, 3%. You tell me. We're talking about, you know, $60 million if she takes 2%. We're talking about $90 million if she takes 3%. $150 million if she takes 5%. Annual $150 million if she takes 5%. Does this explain why she's not in a hurry? Makes me think. Now, look, I may believe that Phil Knight and Alan Smolinski are the right people to own the team. You may believe that. I think the NBA is the best chance you and I have of Jody Allen getting a wake-up call. It appears to me that Adam Silver has kind of reached the end of his rope. And and he hasn't said anything. He hasn't, you know, but I'm being told that Phil Knight would not have been this public and this aggressive without Adam Silver's blessing. Keep an eye on Jody Allen. Because I believe the NBA commissioner is probably not that comfortable with her as the acting owner of the franchise. And I use acting owner in air quotes. Remember the bodyguards who uh, you know, claimed in the depositions that Jody sexually harassed them? She bought them swim trunks, made them perform a fashion show for her. Remember the guards who said that she directed them to smuggle animal bones out of Africa and Antarctica? Fifteen members of that personal security detail have filed civil lawsuits against the Allen family. More than a dozen of them settled out of court. The Allen family attorneys, I should say to be fair to them, have called all of those accusations meritless. But USDA records do reveal that inspectors destroyed 72 pounds of giraffe bones belonging to Vulcan Inc. What are they doing? Uh, I think this is a really important conversation to have.
I am uh, fascinated by the fate of the franchise. It's really important to a lot of people. But I am left looking at what we are watching unfold before our very eyes and just shaking my head. It never should have ended this way. It never should have been left to a trustee in an estate and question marks and Jody Allen clinging to the team. And keep in mind, she doesn't get anything when the team is sold. In fact, she loses the 90 to $150 million a year that she will be collecting. 10 to 20 years, she says. That's how long it's going to take to, to settle the estate. 10 to 20 years. I don't know if you have an estate attorney on speed dial, but ask them what they think of that. Because I'm getting laughter on the other end of the phone and going, you would have to, you know, intentionally drag it out. Wall Street Journal had the quote. Uh, it's ridiculous. I think more public pressure is needed. I think Adam Silver and the NBA need to come forth at some point. And I think, you know, look, based upon what those bodyguards have said about Jody Allen, I, I shudder with a sports world that has seen Daniel Snyder and a sports world that has seen Donald Sterling and a sports world that saw the Phoenix Suns, uh, Robert Sarver, have to sell the Suns. I kind of shudder to think that this is the quote-unquote owner of the Trailblazers, and I got to think Adam Silver and the league are not at all comfortable with where this franchise is today. You know, Phil Knight maybe doesn't get the team on the open market, but it shouldn't be sitting in a trust right now. That's why I look at the number three pick. I look at the franchise. This is uh, this is going nowhere fast with Jody Allen holding the keys. Leave it here. Get the bald face truth statewide. Good show today. K.L. Wambacher, Hillsborough Hops general manager, joined us in hour one. Mark Wasikowski, the Oregon baseball coach, joined us in hour two. I just ranted about uh, Jody Allen and Burt Cold and all that stuff. It's just messy. It's not about why is that franchise so infected. Um, I never felt like the ownership of Paul Allen really was going anywhere meaningful. But I never doubted that he loved the team. And if you remove that part of it from his ownership, you don't have a lot left. You just have a deep-pocketed owner, and right now you don't have that passion or that interest or that intrigue. I want to know what you make of it as a Blazer fan. How much do you think the current ownership problem infects or affects the basketball that is being played on the court? Are these incidents or these factors, are these two topics correlated in your mind? Because they are in mine. But I want to know how you see it. 503-417-7575. Phil Knight as owner of the Blazers. Can you get behind that? Alan Smolinski? I can get behind it because I know those guys are going to want to win. They've won everywhere they go. And, you know, it's just like the Phoenix Suns fans got all excited. They got new ownership. Suddenly traded for Kevin Durant, that kind of stuff. Blazers, I'm telling you, it would change the complexion of the organization. Really would. Steven, how much do you think these things have to do with each other? So on the court, I, I, I'll i say this, John. I, I know that it matters. I think it's a little overrated with how much it matters, if that makes sense, because on the court, is it, you have to get the right players still. I understand that the ownership may not get the right players on the court, but once you get those right players on the court, they can win 
regardless of who is being an owner. We've seen bad owners win championships before. So I think it would be it's very it would be very solidifying if Phil Knight comes in, if Smolinski comes in, because then we know like, all right, these guys are in it, they're trying to win, they're gonna put every you know, every asset you know, for or forward and trying to win. So I think it does help, but I think it's a little overrated in the fact that right once Phil Knight, if he came in, like the Blazers are gonna be contenders right away. I think that's not gonna happen because they just don't have the right roster, the right pieces to go around it. And they're gonna try their hardest, they're gonna do their best to do it. But right away, it's not going to happen. So I, I think it's a little of both. It's kind of a cop-out answer, but I really feel that way yeah. that it, it it does affect on the court, but it also doesn't. Like, you still just need better players. You still just need a better roster. And it doesn't matter if it's Phil Knight. It doesn't matter if it's Mark Cuban. It doesn't matter if it's you and me, John. I, you need better players. And I don't think an owner necessarily gets those type of players in right away. I, I disagree. I, and I don't think the owner is getting the players in, but I think the owner is hiring a general manager who's more experienced. And the owner is willing to make those moves. I think there are numerous examples. Golden State Warriors are a great example. I was a Warriors fan growing up. Franklin Muley owned the team. They went nowhere, nowhere, nowhere. New ownership, new vision, infused with money, infused with new ideas. They hire a general manager worth a damn. They draft well. They hire a good coach. Those are, those are all small things. But I think they line up, and they, they line up in a congruency of vision way. And, and some people, I, I've raised this over the years. I think, you know, I say accidents aren't, are, you know, championships are not accidental. The Milwaukee Bucks are a great example of that. The Milwaukee Bucks, under old ownership, they, they, were, they were a garbage franchise. What changed there? You, know, you can say, hey, they drafted Giannis. That was the, that was the you know, the change. But I would argue that a, an ownership group who doesn't know what they're doing, who doesn't have vision, who doesn't hire the right general manager, doesn't have invest in scouting, doesn't do all the little things that are necessary even after they get Giannis to surround him with the right kinds of players, I think it definitely goes back to vision. And I think Dan Gilbert in Cleveland didn't have a great reputation as a great owner, but I think once he got LeBron, he was willing to spend. He was willing to say, okay, I'll be a taxpayer. I'll, I'll put things around him. Ownership in Miami. You look at what the, where the championships have been in the NBA. It's Golden State, it's Milwaukee, it's the Lakers under new ownership, it's the Raptors who had great management, it's the Warriors, it's the Warriors, it's the Cavaliers, it's the Warriors, it's the Spurs, and the Spurs have had great ownership and great leadership, coaching, general manager for years. And then even before that, the Dallas Mavericks kind of popped in there. Why? Not not before Mark Cuban, only after Mark Cuban. So I, I think there's a direct correlation between ownership and that. But, I, but I'll it, buy what you're saying because – I think you're talking about from the basketball side, once the season starts, no. I don't think the players are that tuned into who's the owner and what decisions, but I think there's a multitude of things that go into it before that that come directly from the owner. I do agree with that, yes. But, I, yeah, my point is, like, Phil Knight comes in. He doesn't want Joe Cronin, let's just say. He goes out and he gets you know the best general manager available. Like, there's no moves right away that are going to make the Blazers contenders. Now, over time, it's going to work because I think Phil Knight and everyone's going to put in all the assets – but day one, like it's no, not going to change. One. It's not going to change much, one. and so I think it is still a little overrated. Like I think if the Blazers, if if Jody Allen was still here in five years, and the Blazers did the right moves in the offseason, which I think that they could do, you know, they draft Scoot Henderson, he hits Scoot and Shaden Sharp leading the team. Like this team could be really good, and I don't think it matters if it's jo Jody Allen or if it's Phil Knight as the owner. I think it's more the basketball players now. Is it more likely that Phil Knight, if he makes the right choice, that more guys are going to come in? Probably. But I think it's a little overrated of how much we you know, put all the problems on Jody Allen.
I'm going to throw you to the listeners. 503-417-7575. Skewer them. Let's go to the Sam. Sam in Vancouver. Go ahead, Sam. Yeah, so um, I I got to say, man, I've been a Blazer fan for a long time. Well, except for the last 20 years. But um, I really <laughs> think that the the Blazer fan base, I think I got to kind of go a little astray here with this, um, that they've got to really kind of start focusing on that kind of management I don't know if you've noticed, but on your on the uh, the post from Facebook and everything, that now finally Blazer fans are starting to see the ownership when all they were ever worried about was Damian and everything like that. The fact of the matter is, is that I think it goes back to with uh, Russell Wilson and how I think Paul Allen pretty much gutted the Blazers to pay Wilson. I think that was the first sign. I fear that Jody is going to milk this. Um, because the lease is up, I think, after this city or something like that, I read. Um, and I honestly, deep down, think that she's going to try to get the most money she can, which is 100% cool. That's business. But I really think that what all the Blazer fans are thinking, that Adam Silver will never leave, let the team leave Portland and all this other stuff, honestly, I think if Jody gets her way, she wants to move the, the team to no, Seattle no. because she is a Seattleite, and we have a Seattleite that's owning the Portland Trailblazers. That's like having the offices for the Boston Red Sox in New York City or vice versa. Yeah. All right. that's I, what I love your passion. I, I love your passion, but there's no way NBA owners are going to take what would be about a $6 billion payday between Las Vegas and Seattle as the expansion options in the next round. They're not going to let the Blazers move. I, I ran this by a, a, a team president in the NBA, sitting team president. I said, would Jody be able to move the team? And they said, well, here's what it would take to move the team. They would want a relocation fee that would be equal to the expansion fee because the owners in the NBA are not going to say, hey, go ahead and move the team to Seattle. We'll just We, wish, we just won't expand there. No, they're going to want a relocation fee that would be equal to the expansion fee, and that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't pencil out. I, all right, I want more of your phone calls coming up. we got Sam in Portland holding. Anybody else want in on this topic? 503-417-7575. Anna's coming along as well for the 5 at 5, but we'll start the 5 o'clock hour by finishing this discussion. How much does ownership matter in your mind? I don't think there are accidents. I think the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs Got great ownership. I think the winner of the Kentucky Derby, you look at the trainer, the jockey, the horse, you look at the owner of the horse, you go, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Everybody knew what they were doing. Can you win with a bad owner in any sport? Leave it here. We've been talking about ownership. I believe that good restaurants need a good owner. Good owner hires a good general manager. Good general manager hires good chefs. Believes in customer service, knows how to run a restaurant, hires good employees. Good owners look for good locations. How much does the owner matter when it comes to a championship team? I think it really matters. Do I think you can get passable with bad ownership? Uh, Yeah, I think there's lots of examples of talented players overcoming bad ownership. But I don't find them in the championship game. And I think you look across sports and you study why the Milwaukee Bucks have success in recent years. You could say it's Giannis. 
But look at all the things that happened from an ownership perspective prior to his arrival. How about uh, the Denver Nuggets? Take a look at the Nuggets over the years. I think the Nuggets have an owner that really wants to win, who made some good decisions. He's got a good coach, got a great GM, got some talent. They look really good. Let's take a couple calls on this. Anna's popped into the studio. Anna, how you doing? What's new? Big birthday over the weekend. We're uh, celebrating <laughs> the nine-year-old's birthday. Yeah. You pulled it off. You gave her the birthday that that uh, you're you're really good with these. Still recovering. <laughs> She's eight, about to turn nine. Yeah. So we pulled the we pulled the trigger a little early on the birthday. Yeah, you got out of the way. Well, it's a busy time of year, you know. Graduations. There's a lot of competing events. Father's Day's coming up. Oh yeah, that too. That too. <laughs> Not that anybody's noticing. Um, <laughs> we took. Uh, she wanted to go to Top Golf. I know. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Shout out to the crew at Top Golf. They do a great job. Man, the server Megan, she was great. I mean, anyone who's ever been a server knows a group is hard. And then you try to add in the fact that the group is mostly consisting of six, seven, eight, and nine-year-olds. Yeah. Megan had the patience of Mother Teresa. Well, she's going to be a pilot. She's in flight yeah. school. Yeah. thought that was cool. Mm-hmm. She's like fourth-generation pilot. She did a great job. They do a great job with birthdays. Um, we had fun. Yeah. We had fun out there. Um, but give me an idea from your standpoint now why the birthday is such a big deal. You go over the top. My mom used to make a cake, and we'd have like six or eight kids come over. Uh-huh. We'd play some football in the backyard, and uh, they they might bring some presents, and then we send everybody home. That's pretty good, too. That's, that's good, That's too. a normal birthday party from the 1980s, yeah, okay? right. But you do, like, gift bags on the way out for everybody. It's like, you know, the kids are all coming. We're going to Top Golf. There's a centerpiece with a bunch of balloons. There's donuts for everybody. Can, can I ask Anna about yeah. that, too? You talk about yeah. the gift bags. What, what's up with the gift, like, the parting gift bags? Every kid party has to have gift bags. <laughs> like, what, yeah. Yeah. Is it, yeah, what's like up we with all, that? We all have to have a trophy at the end of the tournament? Like, what are we yeah. doing here? Participation. Tr- yeah. I'm not sure how that became such a thing. Like, I think Hallmark had a role in this. I don't know. I just know that our gift bags have increased in complexity uh, over yeah. the last, oh, I don't know, seven years. You do really good gift bags. these that's, parties. That's the thing. Some of these gift bags are good. Yeah. Like, my kids yeah. getting good gifts at the end of the day. I'm like, it's not even your birthday. Yeah, Anna some of them are crap. Let's just, Anna let's just get the call memo. it what it is. They may, she yeah. didn't get the memo. It's supposed to be an eraser, <laughs> a pencil, some little plastic item that cost eleven cents thrown <laughs> into a the little bag that they give you at the dentist office yeah, when like, you leave, like a pencil topper <laughs> eraser. <laughs> That's supposed to be the gift bag. Anna was giving away these these puzzle like Rubik's cube things that she was giving away full things of art supplies well, and we, marker we were pens. giving those away. No, no, John. Anna was giving no, away. We I, I played no role in that. We gave those away. I played no role in that. I don't I, I can't take the credit for it. Okay. I was surprised. I was like, who who brought these? <laughs> these are pretty good. <laughs> well we did and we're giving them away. Yeah. The gift I don't bag. know. To answer your question, Stephen, I don't know. I don't know how they became such a thing. But um I know that we've just We've trended toward really creative on those. And then you know. Anna comes to me. Okay, this is funny because you know you're gonna get parents who show up at Top Golf, okay? And uh, 
And, you know, because everybody has to bring a kid, and then you're in Hillsboro. Yeah. So it's not like they're going to drop the kid and then drive back home and then come back out to Hillsboro, especially if you're coming from a different part of town. Right. And so we're out in Hillsboro at Top Golf. Anna says, you know, the server, Megan, is talking to Anna. They wave me over, Stephen. <laughs> and I feel like I'm going to make a decision here for once in my life. They wave me in like I'm landing. I'm a 747. I come over, and Anna says, you know, what do we do for parents who show up who want to order like a beer? Or a wine, or a drink, or some food, or whatever. Because we already had ordered like two hundred dollars in food for the whole party for the kids <laughs> to eat all this food that they weren't going to eat, which is fine. But it was a bunch of like you know chicken wings and and uh, and chicken strips and hummus and all this stuff that the kids are eating. Um, and I say, you know, I'm cool with buying everybody drinks to a certain extent, but if they want to buy a bunch of beer and stuff, you know, should we be paying for that? And Anna looks at me and goes, yes, we should be paying for that. And I said, you didn't really want my input. <laughs> she just waved me over, Stephen. It didn't matter what I said. So I was like, yeah, open bar, whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it was one of those moments where she just thought you knew what she was thinking. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I said, I turned to Megan, the server. I was like, she really didn't want to know my my vote yeah. on that. I guess. Yeah. I guess in retrospect, that was yeah. a very wifey move. Wasn't yeah. It? She was making me feel like, like I was come included. on over. Let's pretend like there's a decision to make well, here. Yeah. Because yeah, then, yeah. then if you ever say that in an argument, she could be like, No, remember at Top Golf, I brought you over. You know, yeah. we, we <laughs> yeah. make these decisions yeah, you, together, John. What the, are you talking the about? The bill came. It was one hundred fifty dollars. <laughs> you know, hey, you signed off on this. <laughs> what do you think? This is kind of like when Greg Popovich and the Spurs are. You know, they're going to be in the draft. For room and you know they're going to go with the number one pick who are we taking and they're going to turn to the the deputy gm and they're going to go who do you like here and he's going to go yeah you know i i actually think scoot henderson might be the best player but and they're going to go okay it's victor Wembanyama. <laughs> they're going to turn around and pick the pick Wemby anyway uh let's go to the phone lines uh we got people holding want to talk about blazers ownership sam's in portland sam uh do you need a great owner to win big yeah, but John, first of all, Anna, can I get invited to the next Conzano birthday party? I mean, no kidding. You're giving away free food and drinks and gift bags. I'm all in. I'm, I'm there. So please invite me. We turned to Kardashian away. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, I think ownership, you know, I think about my two favorite teams, the Steelers and the Blazers. The Steelers have great ownership. They just hired a great general manager, had a great draft. They're all about championships and winning, and people are excited. The fans are excited. Players are excited. Players want to play for the Steelers. I don't feel the same thing with the Blazers right now. I think the ownership is is terrible. I don't think they're focused on winning. I don't think they're focused on a championship. And I think a new owner, somebody like Phil Knight, is going to get everyone excited. Players are going to want to come here. Fans are going to want to come to the games. So ownership is is crucial it's number one i think in my book as far as uh putting a good team on on the court and winning a championship and a question john forgive me for not knowing specifically doesn't she have to sell the team so the team is technically for sale because she has to sell it and what is the timeline in that and when does she have to sell the team yeah nobody's seen the actual will and the will got put into the trust which pre-existed you know but we all know that that it does dictate that it must be liquidated um she is supposed to act with fiduciary um requirements 
the estate attorneys that I spoke with and the estate attorney that was quoted in the Wall Street Journal piece all said 10 to 20 years is ridiculous. Uh, it, that's way too long. But I do think it's explained, you know, and I wrote this today at johnconzano.com that, you know, she is allowed to draw a fee at, after serving as, you know, an annual fee because she is the trustee. And the state law in the state of Washington allows her to take a reasonable fee. And let's just say the Blazers are worth $3 billion. That fee can be 2 3 4 5% of the overall value of the state. Uh, the Blazers portion alone is worth 90 to $150 million to her. Let's go to Tyrone, who's in Portland. Ty, what do you think? Hey, John. Well, I kind of look at it this way. The Blazers are kind of like out in the ocean, and there's still captains steering the ship. Uh, you know what? I, if you were able to see that they were actually trying, you know, they don't have to necessarily win a championship in my book, but you want to see someone trying. It's like your kid, you know, hey, are you putting in the effort? Then you're not going to scold them as much, but when you see all the bad hires and everything that they've done over the years. It's just, it's just real frustrating as a Blazer fan to see that uh, uh, the lackadaisic of uh, the commitment. So, Yeah, and I think, look, it's hard. I think, you, you know, you, you draw a great analogy there that they, they're adrift. They feel adrift. Can a great player overcome some of that? I, I think a little to a certain extent, but I think it's a Band-Aid. I think you have good ownership. You generally tend to make good decisions. And I, th- I even think, you know, look, there's some examples of some some people who are not necessarily great people, but who are good owners. Robert Kraft comes to mind with the Patriots. I don't think he's a good person, but I think he is extremely talented when it comes to business, and I think he is motivated. He's a fan who's got great business acumen, who happens to own a team, and that combined with the guys he hired – and drafted, lined up for a bunch of Super Bowls for the Patriots. Let's play the five at five. Let's do it. The five at five. Anna, what do you got? Number one story as you see it. Well, let's start with college baseball. The Oregon Ducks are advancing to the Super Regional in baseball, and they'll be hosting this coming weekend in Eugene, Oregon State, Meanwhile, lost to LSU, 7-13. They lost in Baton Rouge. The Beavers are eliminated. LSU advances. Beavers are out. But you kind of you got to admit, and I talked about this throughout the show, that their fingerprints are all over the success of baseball in the Pacific Northwest. I think that you know they are a driving factor for Oregon bringing baseball back. Oregon looked over at Oregon State and said, hey, got to do what they're doing. They're winning national titles. Why aren't we doing that? And Oregon invested in baseball. I think Washington, to some extent, has invested in and made some moves because of Oregon State as well. Uh, University of Portland success. Kale Wambacher said it earlier in the show. He says, you know, you got to look at Oregon State. You got to give them credit and, and look at them. But it, it, I think it's a rebuilding year for Oregon State. I also think that it's interesting that some fans are frustrated. Shows that their expectations are sky high. That's not a bad thing. Don't lower the bar. They'll meet those expectations. Number two story, as you see it. Go ahead. I know you guys talked a lot about this a little bit, but it's worth mentioning for anyone just tuning in. NFL investigating a Colts player after it found evidence that the player had placed hundreds of bets, including games that he himself played in. Now, interestingly, the initial reports um, by ESPN 
it appears that ESPN accidentally named the player Isaiah Rogers yes, in the headline. As the, yes, as the target of this uh, probe by the NFL. And then subsequently, has that changed or are they still saying well, that? Well, right? when you go, when the, the piece <laughs> itself doesn't have his name, it says yeah. he's unnamed. But what I think happened here, because I've seen this happen before, they wrote the story originally, I believe, with Rogers, who is a defensive back on the team. Named in the headline, named in the story. I think ESPN subsequently, probably at the behest of their attorney, removed his name from the story. But when they published the original uh, version of that uh, headline, popped up on ESPN's homepage. It's still there. I don't know if they know it's there, but they are outing the player. The body of the ESPN story now does name him. It does name him. And the wording is very careful. So it says, multiple sources familiar with the investigation confirmed to ESPN. The player in question is Colts cornerback and kick returner Isaiah Rogers. There you go. Did we we not break that story before ESPN? (laughs) (laughs) We had it earlier. A little tricky there. Number three, as you see it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm putting this out there because I'm curious about everyone's take. So Michael Vick is included in the list of College Football Hall of Fame nominees for the class of 2024. Now, there are other people on the list. Randy Moss, Larry Fitzgerald are on there. Um, in fact, there's 78 former players on this year's ballot with years of activity playing from 1974 to 2011. But Michael Vick's name catches my eye, I guess because so much of what he was doing involving dogfighting. I mean, he's still on probation, technically, on felony convictions for dogfighting. And I'm just curious um, whether the public has just shrugged and moved on and said, well, he, he, he paid his penance for that. Well, the College Football Hall of Fame ballot, it's interesting. Because it's different than the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which does include some provision. You know, was he a good teammate? Was he a good person? You know, I was looking here at the ballot and the criteria. You have to have been a first-team All-American as a player within 50 years of the ballot date. And, you know, there is no provision in there for, you know, were you a good person or did you eventually become convicted of a crime or did you go to prison or... You know, I gotta I gotta look up. I, I don't know off the top of my head. Did they do they still include O.J. Simpson as a member of the College Football Hall of Fame? Because to me, it's interesting how I guess hoity-toity we get with these Hall of Fames. You know, hey, we, we need to we need Terrell Owens to have been a good teammate to consider him. We need uh, you know, but O.J. Simpson. We all know what O.J. did, right? Do we? Depends on who you no, ask. No, do we agree? Did OJ do it, Anna? Did OJ do it? Steven, did OJ do it? Yeah. You feel pretty good about it? I feel pretty good. I agree. Um, now, according to my uh, little search here, he is still in the Pro Football Hall of Fame and College Football Hall of Fame. Yeah, so okay. how are you going to keep Michael Vick out? You can't. I would sit there. Based as, on that. Look, I think Michael Vick was a sensational college football player he was i didn't know he was the first black quarterback to be drafted first overall 
and hmm. playing for the Atlanta Falcons. I mean, he was really like such a superstar at 27 years old. Yeah. And then was arrested when his kennels in Virginia were raided and 48 dogs were seized. It's one of these things. <laughs> like nobody talks about it with John Morant. Yeah. I'm going to bring it up. Okay. Because I think the people around Michael Vick were probably as destructive as the people around John Moran. Okay. Let's make that argument. Bad judgment. It was not in Michael Vick's best interest to have his friends helping him run a kennel. You know, he didn't have time for that, playing football. He, there was other voices in that room, and, you know, I know we are all wrapped up into that. I think part of the problem that a player like John Morant, Michael Vick, others have had over the years is that, you know, you become the star athlete, the entourage goes with you, suddenly there's a abundance of funding and some bored friends that are hanging around. I I just don't think Ja on his own in a professional setting with good friends around him would have anybody doing anything other than propping him up for the success that he is bound to have. Same with Michael Vick in the dogfighting. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox now. No, I, I, that's actually why I brought it up. I was interested to hear what you thought. It's number four. Uh, so this one's curious as well. So uh, former Jets offensive lineman Shaw Ferguson is saying that he plans on attending nursing school. So he's 39, retired from the NFL in 2016, and he was doing an interview recently on a podcast discussing how his confidence was low since he didn't take any science classes or hadn't taken any science classes since high school. But he enrolled in community college after retiring, uh, finished all the coursework, and plans to apply to nursing school in the fall. I love it. Like, I am fascinated by, like, that. that's such an interesting turn. Because, and the backstory on this is that he underwent open-heart surgery when he was just nine years old. Wow. And that procedure is what sparked his interest in part in medicine. He is a really interesting guy. He was a three-star prospect in high school. Three stars. Not four-star, not five-star, not a no-brainer. He was undersized by NFL standards. He's 6'6", 295, uh, his senior year at Virginia. He weighed 312 at the Combine. But he is a black belt in karate, a brown belt in taekwondo, and he has an arm span of 87 inches, which means in the ER, he's going to be able to reach over... (laughs) So far away. Can you get can you get that IV in the other room? He'll get it. Trust me. He's he's just different. He was very mobile, had great feet, karate, taekwondo, playing NFL tackle. Now he's going to be a nurse? Yeah. Don't mess with him. Yeah. The black he's belt. He's deciding whether he wants to do emergency room work or be a nurse practitioner. No, no. ER. I want him in the <laughs> ER. <laughs> When I come into the ER, that's the guy I want. Talk about transferable skills, you know? Yeah. Like calm under pressure kind of thing. People are going to be like, you know, I've had such a bad day. And he's like, have you ever blocked? (laughs) (laughs) You ever had to block? I would pay money money to hear that job interview, you know? Yeah. Yeah. How are you going to deal with? Tell us a strength that you have that is born from a weakness. (laughs) Well, number five, 
Is it five? All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm on the uh, ball today. Yeah. Kyrie Irving wants to reunite with his former teammate, LeBron James. I know. I did it. I included him again in the five at five. But he doesn't want to do it with the Lakers. Uh, the point guard has informed the Mavericks that he wants them to explore trading for James in the offseason. Irving has already reached out to James to see if he'd be interested in joining him with the Mavericks. Man. This is according to Shams. Now, James, of course, not scheduled to be a free agent, so really any trade would be really hard to pull off. Um, this is one of these things where you have to acknowledge that it's June and there are only two teams left playing and there's a lot of NBA reporters looking for stories and I think this one's got that written all over it to mm -hmm. me it's it's a bar stool conversation and I mean that like literally a stool in a bar <laughs> not that other bar stool it's just it's low-hanging fruit oh, so the I next one we're gonna have is you know, who's a better athlete, Secretariat or Michael Jordan? That's the next <laughs> Shams tweet for June. I don't know. By the way, who was? Do you, can, can you consider a horse a great athlete? I think, of the I think of the jockey as the athlete. Really? Because we don't consider the car, you yeah. know, motorsports race. True. Yeah. We say, we don't say, oh, the pit crew. But the horse is no. alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the car's it's not glorified. breathing. Yeah, but can you consider the horse? <laughs> can you literally say Secretariat or Michael Jordan? Jim Thorpe or, you know, Man of War? I mean, I've mm -hmm. seen I've seen bad athlete horses. <laughs> like, if a horse is big and fat and slow, it's not a good athlete. I've ridden a couple of those horses. Yeah, see, that's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Horses, not so good at athlete. I got a librarian horse. <laughs> Did you catch Steven saying, the car isn't breeding? <laughs> breathing. Breathing. Oh, breathing. Or breeding. Or breeding, yeah. <laughs> Either one. <laughs> Either one. I don't know. I, I think of the jockey. Is the athlete the horse or the jockey? It's got to be the jockey if we're having a real debate conversation because you can't compare a horse to a football player or a basketball player. Mm -hmm. The horse is a horse. Yeah. But would it have mattered if the jockey was different on secretariat? Mm -hmm. You know? I tend to think it would have. Is the jockey incidental? If so, why aren't these horses racing without a jockey? Isn't the jockey just like the coach? Like He's like the coach of the horse. I don't know. I've seen some of these guys <laughs> at the end of the races. They look like hell. Well, you know? Yeah, I mean, they do tend to wind up with a lot of mud splattered on their face, but I haven't, I don't know. Last time I checked, most coaches aren't whipping their athletes to well, make them go faster. Mike well, Rice I, Jr. would disagree. I also, <laughs> I also think uh, I would like to see the horses race without the jockeys, just to see what would happen. Yeah. They should do the just derby. Just go to southern or eastern Oregon and search for some wild ones. But they should just do the derby, and yeah. then they should go, okay, now the jockeyless derby. And maybe the horse that wins the derby comes out of the gates and is just like, I'm not here to race. Yeah, well, th that's what always cracks me up, because people always want to, like, anthropomorphize the horse. Oh, that horse just had racing in its blood it was ready to race that yeah. day you know like they talk about it like a real athlete but we don't really know you know like we yeah. like to think the horse really enjoys racing but i don't it's know that whole dog conversation when i see dogs with runners i i have the same thing in my head every time i see i you know the the diehard runner you see out who's running on a saturday morning or whenever and has their dog with him and i go did that dog know when it got adopted, that it was going to be dragged outside 
and having to run six miles, ten miles. It was running forty miles a week, whatever the you know the training regimen is for the dog. And by the same token, I see the people who are standing by the freeway on ramp who have a pet, and I'm going, a you should not have a pet. You need to be taking care of yourself first. So that's another mouth to feed. Or are you using the pet to get donations? And then B, I look at the dog and go, is that dog watching the running dogs going, I wish I had that life? Well, I have a different take on the people yeah. that are, you know, on the side of the freeway with a pet. Okay. Because I've interviewed a number of them. All right, go ahead. And for a lot of them, uh, there's a level of protection because it's not safe on the street. So they get a dog that can help defend them. Um, in precarious situations that they're faced with all the time. And then also in the winter months, if they truly are on the streets, the pet actually provides body heat. Yeah, so they, you're they doing the responsible alive. thing right now. I'm saying, is that dog looking longingly at the runner dogs going, I wish I had that other life? You know? It's dogs don't get a choice is what I'm saying, Anna. Yeah. Like maybe one of our dogs wanted to be a runner dog. Yeah. And instead is going, come on. Come on, you guys. One of our dogs is a runner. She escapes all the time. <laughs> she digs out from under the fence and goes free and goes we, on a little walkabout. Unfortunately, she comes back. <laughs> That's the part that Jeez. I'm okay with the first part of it. All right. Uh, coming up, uh, we're, I'm going to talk about a golf tournament that has a cause to it. Plus, the amazing story that Rose Zhang was over the weekend. Surprised she didn't up in Anna's 5 at 5. Stanford athlete wins the NCAA championship and then in her pro debut wins an LPGA event. It's never happened before. Not good enough for the five at five, apparently. Oh, missed it. That's next. Well, I have reached out to Stanford to request uh, Rose Zhang, who is the uh, professional golfer who won the U.S. Amateur and uh, the NCAA title the last two years, and then went out in her LPGA debut and uh, won in her first pro event. Never happened before. Reached out to Stanford to get her on the show. Stanford directed me to her agent who told me she would like to come on the show. She'll be on the show at some point. Uh, we're in queue. She did the Today Show today. We are not in front of the Today Show. I was informed that today. And I said, you know, like, you know, this is uh, a Pac-12 friendly show. We'd love to get her on the show. I would love to talk with her. She's a great story. Stanford golfer. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun to see what she can do. But she went out at the uh, Liberty National Golf Course, shot nine under, and won in a playoff. First pro win. Wasn't um, wasn't like a dominant performance, but I love that Tiger Woods noticed it and said, "Hey, man, that's amazing. Yeah, anything can happen, right? Uh, incredible few weeks for Rosang." Defending her NCAA title and then winning in her professional debut. Uh, reigning NCAA champion becomes the first to win in a pro event, her first pro event. Uh, she'll be on the show at some point. I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I'm going to put an over under of like two weeks on when we get Rose on the show. But she is a superstar right now. And apparently, we're behind Good Morning America in, in today's show. It's all right. We need a little humbling, and we got it when I talked to her agent. But we're, we're, we're efforting her. We're also efforting Stanford football coach Troy Taylor. He will be on the show. On Thursday's show, Peyton Pritchard, fresh off the Celtics uh, being excused from the NBA playoffs, Peyton Pritchard will be joining us Thursday to help us break down 
the NBA Finals. Think about questions for Peyton Pritchard, Steven. You got any off the top of your head right now? Um, yes. Can't wait. You Really? Yeah. What are you going to ask? What do you want to ask? Well, I want to ask him first about my brother because he helped coach him at West Lynn, so I want to ask okay. about him for first. Um, but second, I do want to know um, about the situation in Boston if there's anything kind of behind the scenes that we're not really getting, if there's any infighting between the team, because at the end of the season uh, in the playoffs, they did seem to fall apart a little bit. Okay. We'll get that. We'll get that in. And uh, he, he joins us usually once a year, summertime after he's decompressed. So he must be decompressed. He's ready to come on. So Peyton Pritchard on Thursday. Uh, we're going to play some punch it audio here. Can we do this here? You want to do it? Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, USC changed coaches from Lincoln Riley and then bolted for the Big Ten Conference. Greg McElroy says that Colorado might be doing the same thing. They hired Coach Prime. Are they on the move? Punch it. USC, did their administration think that there was at some point maybe going to be a move to the Big Ten? So, in order to get out in front of it, they say, yeah, who's the biggest, baddest dude on the block that would be willing to potentially come be the head coach of the Trojans? Oh, Lincoln Riley? Perfect. Let's swing on him. They give him a hundred plus million dollars. He's got that beautiful house right there in Southern California. And boom, USC is immediately a contender. And then Colorado, this past off season, they think, you know what? We're kind of a middle of the road, bottom tier program with where we're at right now. We haven't done anything of significance with any level of consistency in quite a while. So we got a swing. They go out, they get Deion Sanders, arguably the biggest free agent in the coaching pool this past offseason. All of a sudden, Colorado goes from an afterthought to the headline conversation of just about every single offseason storyline. So I'm not saying that there's necessarily an indicator with some coaching moves that have been made, but there's examples in which they could kind of see what was potentially coming and wanted to upgrade their head coaching situation no i just i think there's a reach here i'm worried that mcelroy is going to pull a muscle in his back making the reach they're just tremendous number of examples of programs spending a little more investing more in football trying to attract a higher profile coach that didn't leave for other schools you have to remember what drives expansion and I think part of the last nine months has been an education for myself and for a lot of other people in talking to TV executives, talking to people in college football who make these kinds of decisions and asking them, you know, dumb question after dumb question. But I, I think he's hunting in in an area here that doesn't really make sense to me. Colorado has the Denver television market. That is far more important than Coach Prime when it comes to your conference affiliation and your media rights value. We had Bob Thompson, the former Fox Sports Network's president on this show. I asked him that very question about Deion Sanders in Colorado and whether or not Deion being at Colorado 
could mean that there's an increased value on the Pac-12's media package. He said, eh, not really a uh, game-changing move there. It's still the Denver TV market. And it will be the Denver TV market after Coach Prime is gone. And this is where McElroy's argument falls apart. USC was different. I believe USC knew probably a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, that leaving to the Big Ten was a possibility. Didn't happen in June and July. It happened months and months, maybe a year before they ever made that move. The Big Ten Conference didn't want Lincoln Riley. It didn't want Caleb Williams. It may have wanted USC's brand, but only because USC's brand happens to do business in the Los Angeles TV market, where there are 5.6 million television households. Denver is market 16. That's worth maybe 35, 37 million per year. You're not going to the Big Ten at that number. You're not going to the Big 12. It's not enough to move the needle. But it's something for Greg McElroy to talk about. I'll give him that. Josh Pate talking about Bo Nix and his return to Eugene. How big is that for the Ducks? Punch it. And I was talking to one of their staffers, and they said, hey, man, I know that you guys are talking recruiting a lot, and you're talking portal a lot. But, man, us getting Bo Nix to come back, because his dad wanted him to go in NFL draft. Us getting Bo Nix to come back, that's the biggest recruiting win we had. And they, they lost Kenny Dillingham to Arizona State, so they got a new offensive coordinator. Said that is huge, huge, huge. We love where we're at right now. Look, I think it's big. I think that synergy between experienced quarterback coming back, continuity of the coaching staff, talent, investment in football. Hell, you don't have to look very far. Georgia football had it. Yet the quarterback position had a 25-year-old quarterback. That you know, to go alongside everything else Georgia was doing right. I think it's big for Oregon to have Bo Nix back. I think it's equally big for Michael Penix Jr. to be back at Washington. I think it's equally big that Cam Rising is returning to Utah. I think it's amazing for the Pac-12 Conference that you also have Caleb Williams, the reigning Heisman Trophy winner. Guy was on top of my ballot. Despite the fingernails, I voted for Caleb Williams. He's coming back. I think this conference is going to be loaded. But getting Nick's back was huge for Oregon. In particular, because you lost Kenny Dillingham, Pate knows that. You've got a new coordinator in Will Stein. It really helps Will Stein to have Bo Nix in his corner. Do you you think it's true that uh, Bo Nix's dad wanted him to go to the NFL? I don't know. I have have to ask him. I don't know the family dynamic well enough. And from what I've been told, you know, Bo's married. He's just – he's a different kind of kid. Like, he's – it's a you know Bo Nix versus the other Oregon players on the roster. I think there's a big difference with those kids, and I do think Nix's family's involved in the conversation. They seem to have orchestrated everything to this point. They're they're looking out for their kid. I don't know. I don't know if Dad. I I feel like we should get Dad on the show. I also talk about it. I think it's interesting because it's it's one of those things where NIL money is obviously a big deal because if, if his family and if his dad yeah. if that's true and he said you need to go to the NFL and he's like no I'm getting this money at Oregon still with NIL like that's a big deal I think yeah and I think you know we the problem I'm having with NIL right now is I don't think we can get our minds wrapped around whether or not um, these players are getting five hundred seven hundred thousand to come back to school are they getting a million are they getting two million are they getting three million like. 
I don't know what the market is right now. And it frustrates me because I know a lot of other stuff, and I don't feel like I have a handle on what did Michael Penix Jr. get? What did Bo Nix get? And I look at all of the reporters who supposedly are supposed to know, and they're guessing. They're all over the map. You know, I saw something over the weekend that said, you know, average starter for a D1 team is getting an NIL deal worth about 55000 And I was like, yeah, but... What does that mean for Michael Penix Jr.? Like, is he getting three mil and somebody's getting 5,000? Like, how does that work? And I'd like to know more about it. But it it appears to me, between Penix Jr. and Bo Nix, that it was no-brainer money. So what is no-brainer money, Stephen, for a, for a college kid? Who's, gotta, you know, gotta, be two, gotta be multiple million, two million, I would say. I think it's at least a million. I would say I at least a million. Like I think it has to be. Figures. Yeah, I think it has to be more than just one million, though. I don't know why. But but I'm looking at Knicks, and I and let's be real. I don't think Bo Nix was a shoe in to be an NFL starter someday. I don't think he is right now. I need to see a, more of him in college. But I think he would have been drafted. I think he would have gone to a team. I think he would have made a roster. I don't know if he could have played. And so I'm kind of wondering. For Bo Nix, I think the number's at least a million for him to come back and put the NFL off. But but the NFL's a big question mark for him. Michael Malone, coach of the Nuggets, he was perplexed by the Denver Nuggets' effort in Game 2. It's the NBA Finals, and they got outworked by the Heat. Series is tied one apiece. Punch it. No, let's talk about effort. I mean, this is the NBA Finals, and we're talking about effort. That's a huge concern of mine. You know, and you guys probably thought I was just making up some storyline after game one when I said we didn't play well. We didn't play well. And tonight, you know, that the starting lineup to start the game is 10-2 Miami. Start the third quarter. They scored 11 points in two minutes and 10 seconds. Um, and we just got, you know, we had guys out there that were just, whether feeling sorry for themselves for not making shots or thinking they can just turn it on or off, um, this is not the preseason. This is not the regular season. It's not round. This is the NBA Finals, and that to me is really, really perplexing, disappointing. And I asked the team, I asked our player, you guys tell me why we lost, and they knew the answer. Miami came in here and outworked us, and we were by far our least disciplined game of these 16 or 17 playoff games, whatever it is now. So many breakdowns, and they exploited every one of those breakdowns and scored. So. Um, if we're going to try to go down there and regain control of this series and get home court advantage back, we're going to have to outwork Miami, which we didn't do tonight, and our discipline is going to have to be off the charts. Really good stuff from Mike Malone. I like him. The more he talks, the more I'm listening. Uh, I think we saw this coming, though, Stephen. Remember we talked about if if the Heat were going to make this at all a series, at all interesting, that they would – play game two like it was a game seven yeah i agree with you and i like mike malone i think he's a good coach uh but i think spolstra really outcoached him in game two and they really forced Jokic to be a scorer and not a passer and that's what Jokic wants to do he wants to pass the basketball and when it when they make Jokic a shooter and a score denver doesn't get as many good looks from three uh last night denver they took 28 three-pointers which only it's only 28 which is kind of unusual but 11 of them were in transition or off offensive rebounds so only 17 in the half court, and I think that's big. If you're the Heat, that's a win for you. I think Spolstra had a great game plan in game two. 
it's going to be up to Mike Malone to kind of figure out, okay, how can we get Jokic to be that you know uh, distributor once again uh, and, and get Denver back in the win column? Yeah. When you say, for our audience, when you say make him a scorer, what do you mean by that? So basically, they a lot of times they, they went one-on-one with him, whether it was Bam or Cody Zeller or whoever was on him at Switch. They, they didn't help off of the shooters. In okay. game one, a lot of the times, especially in the first quarter, Aaron Gordon would off, got a lot of alley-oop dunks. Right. They, you know, he drives and kicks a lot. That's what he wants to do. The help defense was staying when the outside on the perimeter, making him score the two-pointers, which, yeah, it's good. But a lot of times, I think in the NBA, analytically, you want him to shoot two-point shots. You don't want him to shoot the corner three, which is the easiest shot in basketball. So that's what the Heat did this last game, too. It's going to be uh, now Denver's got to make a counter to that. Let's turn our attention. Last thing. Bill Simmons, Ryan Rusulio, talking about the Blazers in the three-pick. Punch it. I do think there'd be teams that are really interested in Damian Lillard, but I'm, I'm more, I think we're on the same page here that it's like in the best-case scenario of events, everybody's healthy, they keep Grant, everything's good, Nurkic actually plays all the time, Sharp takes a jump, all of these things. I, I don't really think that team's probably any better than, than in that 6-7-8 range. They just right. don't defend. Even if- they, they don't. The small guards, man, they got two really small ones. And Lillard has no interest in being a defensive player at all. He just doesn't. They were able to talk the Celtics into like a Jeremy Grant sign and trade with the number three pick for Jalen Brown. I don't know where that gets them, right? Or if they did, I don't know, number three and and, and sharp for Jalen Brown or Paul George or, say, you know, some established star. I still don't know where that gets them. Does that get them to round two? To get them around three, the move you have sharp, you have Simons, you have a number three pick and a three player, and then it drops draft, and you can turn Dame into a load. I like what uh, Bill Simmons is saying there, and I also think he's being realistic. But I kind of wonder if the Blazers organization is more inclined to be content being, uh, being a being a six seed like you know hey we can make a trade we could be a six seed or you could draft for your future now i'm on board i'm on record saying they should take the pick make the pick deal with lillard and whether or not you have to trade him in the coming months if not season don't set a false deadline for having to trade him false deadline is a sure way to get a bad deal but i think they're being real there in that the ceiling for a blazers team even with a trade or an addition it to me, it's more like, hey, the le- the leap they make is they're just a playoff team. They're not a team that has the home court. They're not a team that's really contending. And so, if you're not going to contend, I would rather not contend and add a good young player instead of mortgaging mortgaging my future. I love uh, good causes and uh, the folks behind the Mike Nelson Golf Tournament, the Memorial Golf Tournament that is coming up on Saturday, July 8th, have uh, got a great cause. Uh, you can find more about the tournament by going to MikeNelsonGolf.com. But this tournament began in 2010, and it's a way for Mike's family and friends to support kids in the community the way that he did. In the last 14, 15 years, they've raised funds that have been donated to school programs. They changed the direction in amid the pandemic to focus on kids that were suffering and dealing with pediatric cancer simple goal raise a bunch of money cut the red tape help a family that does not have the resources readily available to deal with a tough situation this is everything that mike nelson was about 
It's going to take place at the Resort at the Mountain, July 8th. You can get more information at MikeNelsonGolf.com. They've even got a kickoff party on the night before at 8 o'clock with a live band. But go to MikeNelsonGolf.com. And uh, the people behind this tournament, they care deeply about Mike and they care about the community. So if you are somebody who's interested in golf and helping out and having fun, MikeNelsonGolf.com. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time. Just a good time. We're back tomorrow with another great show.